Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Joined by Jeffrey Simpson, straight out of Reno. He's still got that Reno smell. And uh, the good the good <laughs> Reno smell. And uh, Terry South, who's cringing at the last comment. The, the good <laughs> Reno smell? There's always a really good smell out of, you know, going to Grandma's house. Mm. Right? Right. They, they were at Grandma's house. What do you think I'm think, talking about? I, it, I don't know. That's what I was trying to get some clarification. I it's just, the sweet smell of no responsibility. Oh, isn't that the greatest? Mm-hmm. Did you go to Tahoe? No. Boring. I didn't gamble either. Didn't you? Good. 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 Way to, way to keep it clean. Did you? But you went to a movie. The Lego Batman movie. And uh, I think today we ought to have a little update on your view of the Lego Batman movie. Well, I, I as I told you, my my view of the film was a bit skewed, literally, just because I was sitting in the very front row. Yeah, your neck, that neck brace you're wearing looks oh pretty gosh. good too. You have no idea how Isn't that much the in pain I am when you when you finally get to go see the movie you want to see, but you're on the front row. And it didn't matter when we saw it; every movie we would have been sitting in the front row. I prefer the back row. Me and my missus. Yeah, that would have been, on the back that would have been nice. Sorry. Sorry that didn't happen for you. It was entertaining. Was it? It was not as good as the Lego movie. You really, yeah. Which was disappointing. Because you were excited for it. Yeah. That's good. But it had some great gags in it, including one involving The Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. Really? That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to have to watch this movie. Maybe I'll go today. I think my clients no, are canceled. Won't. So you I'm gonna, won't. I'm going to go today. No, you won't. Is it weird to go to a movie by yourself? Um, it wouldn't be weird to go see this movie by yourself. But if you went to go see, for instance, A Dog's Purpose <laughs> by yourself, that would be weird. But it does seem a little weird to go to a kid's movie just as a 47-year-old male. I would say it's more of an adult movie than a kid's movie. Is it? Okay. Because a lot of adults play with Legos. Name two. Just saying. I know I don't know any. Okay. That's why it's weird that they would couch an adult, you know, a a movie for grownups. I think if you go in there and there's no kids following you, they might go give you kind of that side eye thing. Is there that creepy guy? (laughs) Keep an eye on that guy. Keep an eye on that guy. Aisle seven. I don't know about you, Terry, but the biggest laugh for me in that movie involved a creepy line when Batman is seen with Robin and Commissioner Gordon. Barbara Gordon says, uh, is that your son? No, that's not my son. That'd be weird. Uh, it'd be weirder if he wasn't your son. <laughs> so that's a great line. They're addressing the reality of Batman Robin's relationship. Good. Good. Welcome to the program, folks. It's February 22nd, which means it's World Thinking Day. So that's what we were just doing right there about Lego Batman, Lego – we were talking about World Thinking Day. The idea is to create a greater awareness and understanding of different cultures and any global concerns regarding that particular region. might be a really good thing to do now that a travel ban may be – No, it's it's extreme vetting. Now that an extreme vetting uh, order is imminent. We'll get to more on World and, and Thinking Day. And what they're going to put out is similar, except they've taken away all the things that got cut up in court. Yeah. Green so, cards, yeah. citizenship. Yeah, stuff the, like the that. stuff that was they shouldn't probably have been in in the first place. Yeah. But, you, but they, didn't, they didn't do extreme vetting of their own order. No. So now they are. 
and they're going to get it right. And now it, it sounds like it's... It seemed like extreme vetting was hassling the people that should have been able to get through. Yeah. It shouldn't be that extreme. So apparently they're going to back it up a little bit. I mean, that's a pretty extreme vetting. Uh, it's also single tasking day. You know, the idea of instead of multitasking, let's just today, let's just focus on getting one thing done, mm. doing it well. That's tough. I have so many things I need to accomplish at the same time. Like a fine tuned wow. Sounds like Jeffrey's multitasking. Wow. That went everywhere. We even got a little Jerem Jordan in there yeah. playing saxophone. <laughs> it's also World Yoga Day. Mm. Uh, I think one of the things I've been trying to push with Terry is that we maybe bring our team together, have a little yoga meeting. Everybody bring a mat. Not me. I'm just trying to have a meeting. I know. Wouldn't it be great if we could just These do a little yoga, get get kind of centered? I think yoga might be pushing it a bit far. Really? Yeah, just for me. Yeah. Relax, you must. Nah. Invite Yoda. Let Yoda come in. Walk us through. So we'll get to all of that excitement. Plus, uh, our our guest today will be a professor about end of the Islamic State, because it sounds like we're we're close to. Uh, Pushing the the marauders, yeah, the ISIS slash ISIL slash what's their other name Dash, yeah, slash every Just, other name IS, uh-huh, uh-huh. out of um, some of the bigger cities in Iraq where they've been trying to create their caliphate. We've had them on the run. If you read the newspapers and stuff, yeah. off in Mosul for a whole month yeah. now. So if you can, if you can get them out of Mosul, yes. And, just keep them on the run and then get them out of Syria. Yesterday, there's a video they, that ISIS has put out. They were showing on the news where they're they're using drones. Uh, ISIS are yeah, and like just, Radio Shack drones. Well, now they're more sophisticated oh, wow. than that. But they fly over Iraqi troops and they just drop some bomb. Wow, where'd now, they get those? I don't know, but I mean they're on the run, but they're also adjusting tactics too. So are yeah. they on the run, or are they just? Adjusting to well, what the situation but I think is at the I moment. Also, I also hear financially they're in dire straits. Well, that's the other side. The U.S. has been trying to shut off their flow of cash. Slow the flow. Save. Of cashola. Life. Yeah, there you go. Do you think those marauders have a map, by the way? Oh, yeah. All the marauders, marauders map? One of the keys to being a marauder is one must have a map. Mm. That was just a Harry Potter reference. Oh. We don't need to expand upon that. Okay, good. Because didn't catch that. Um, so the question is, are, what would happen to ISIS if they actually lose their land? What happens to a group of bandits that are just an ideology? Hmm. They move somewhere else and keep attacking people. That's one option. Yeah. But there's five other possible options oh, that wow. this professor will present to us. And it's fascinating because – Would they be – would they get some sort of gardening co-op together? Maybe. they Maybe they start taking off – taking over garden stores around the world. Okay. And have a, like a garden caliphate. Nice. Some Just fresh, keep it organic. Fresh yeah. organic fruit. <laughs> so sad. But uh, we'll get into that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump denounced anti-Semitism and declared it 
that it's going to stop and it has to stop. While speaking Tuesday at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, he said the FBI and the Justice Department will investigate possible civil rights violation in connection with the threats to Jewish community centers across the U.S. Since early January, 54 Jewish community centers in 27 states have reported threats. Most recently, a community center in Wisconsin was evacuated Monday after a bomb threat was called in the second in just three weeks. Nikki Haley, she's the... Uh, the U.N. ambassador. There you go, U.N. ambassador on Tuesday that the U.S. will not compromise on its support for the European Union and NATO in its quest to improve relations with Russia. The United States thinks it's possible to have a better relationship with Russia. After all, we confront many of the same threats. The U.S., as she said... Um, she singled out Russia over its attempts to destabilize Ukraine, adding greater cooperation with Russia cannot come at the expense of security for our European friends and allies. Hmm. So we'll see how that works. Yeah. The Department of Homeland Security on Tuesday issued a series of memos detailing how the Trump administration plans to crack down on undocumented immigrants and implement President Trump's executive actions with regard to immigration. The memos, which were sent to the U.S. agency's head Heads and released publicly do not include information about implementation of the travel ban that Trump issued last month, which is still on hold in court. The guidelines show plans for a significant increase in the number of individuals who will be deported under the Trump administration's expedited removal regulations. Undocumented immigrants who are unable to prove that they have been living in the U.S. for two years could be subject to expedited removal. Wow. It's a whole whole Undocumented that can't prove that they've been living here for two years. Yeah. But if you've been living here for more than two years... Then you go to a different level You're of a different level of... Vetting te- or something. Yeah, well, yeah. It's... Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's going to be fixed. It's immigration Tetris. And finally, uh, just... This is for you, Matt, because yeah. I know you have sort of a soft heart for things. Yes. Just sort of soft yeah, in general. Yeah, very soft. Jessica Sharman fell in love with the same man twice. Mm. When she was 20 years old... The uh, she, her name, uh, Britain woke up in the hospital last month after an epileptic attack. Oh, boy. Her memory was wiped clean. Oh, wow. She didn't recognize her parents, her dotting boyfriend, Rich Bishop. She tried to end the relationship twice, but Rich vowed to win her back, win her heart back. Right? Wow, that's romantic. He took her on walks to in familiar parks. They revisited favorite restaurants. Eventually, Rich won her over again. And she says, I don't remember the first time I fell in love with Rich. But I do remember the second. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Oh, oh, good. Our audience likes that. Hey, good to have you all here. Thank you. And then my built-in pessimism set in. I'm like, oh. Yeah, you're such a negative Nelly. Yeah. I think that's super romantic twice. I'm like, he's got a really good job. That's probably what happened. But isn't that scary? Yeah, he's probably very wealthy. Isn't it scary well, he's though? Got a nice car, you could have so. one epileptic epileptic attack, and the next thing you know, your wife's like, "I'm out of here." Yeah, I am so glad this finally happened. Like, what if they're done? This guy has enough character to try. Let's. I'll get her to fall in love again. Mm. But that's why you got to take care of your spouse now, because the next thing you know, you could be having a seizure, and then she's gone because you don't remember her. Just a little advice for the marriage guy. See, I would, I would just go, all right, cool, because she would like do stuff for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're a pig. <laughs> oh my, He's a pig. Oh, this is good. I think He's I can live pig. with this. <laughs> oh jeez, you just lost your only fan. Yeah, your mom and dad just—they just turned off the show. They're done. What are you gonna do? Okay, I got to share some things with you. What? We're running short here. 
and I want to get this in. Yeah, boy. It's con- congressional vacation time. Yeah, they're all out. Senate just, in the House. They're, they're all out. out town hall on, meetings. Yeah. Some of them. Meeting with their people. Some of them canceled all their meetings. Yeah, because why? Because there's just going to be backlash. They're afraid they're going to show up and get yelled at. Right. And if you remember in 2009, that didn't fare well for many Democrats right after right. Obamacare was passed. Right. And so that's, that's kind of the origins of the Tea Party. I thoroughly enjoyed that time. You love that time. Uh, regardless of what the political situation is, members of Congress don't do well when they're not talking to people who like them. Yeah, you gotta you gotta talk to your constituency. They, it's a well, rule. But when they hear that, they think people that voted for me, that like me, that want to pat me on the back, mm-hmm. not people that show up and don't like me. Yeah, not people. That, so when yeah. that happens, they tend to not be able to answer questions well. They yeah. get flustered, and then they tend to run away. Right, right, right. Because that's what happened in two thousand nine. So then the question is, has the, the uh, Republicans, have they done anything to prepare themselves no. for this situation? Yes, they have because they're all using the same line. I sort don't of. speak for the president. Sort of. Yeah. It's still not working but, out well. No. In the, uh, well, in fact, we got some great audio of Mitch McConnell, one of his peeps. I, this made me laugh. Just by the way, the woman delivered this line. So play the clip here. The last I heard, these coal jobs are not coming back, and now these people don't have the insurance they need because they're poor. And they work those coal mines, and they're sick. The veterans are sick. The veterans are broken down. They're not getting what they need. If you can answer any of that, I'll sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. Was that Nancy Grace or... uh, that, yeah, that's Nancy pa- Grace. Paula, Paula Dean. <laughs> I will sit down and shut up like Elizabeth Warren. That was Paula Dean because apparently, yeah, a lot of people now, are unemployed now. She she said that, and the whole time McConnell's like looking around to see if someone's going to save him. She drops that line at the end, and he just kind of smiles. Yeah, but then, but it's a turtle smile. But you didn't can't he really say, tell. Didn't he say? I hope you feel better. Now there was no. He said, didn't, I thought the he made video, a The video stopped yeah. right after the line. Obviously. I think he made a comment like, "I hope you feel better now." Huh? After that, getting that vent out. Yeah, yeah. But this is what they're facing. Yeah. But again, I, that's fine. That's fine. But they don't let. Let's vent it out. They don't react well to that. No, no, no. What's her instead name? Left? Of, yeah. Instead of looking at it as an opportunity to talk to people and hear their concerns, they get defensive, or you know, it turns. But then the other side is. That type of tone, it, it, if that continues for the entire meeting, it's unproductive. Right. Yeah. What are we going to do? Just sit there and be lambasted for an hour and a half? Now, Joni Ernst, mm-hmm. she is the senator. senator from Iowa. Yeah. If you remember, she ran with the campaign ads talking about she, she's a, a hog castrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was yeah. – I had to look it up. She's a hog. There was something with pigs. She was a pig farmer growing mm-hmm. up and then she put it in her campaign yeah. ads and it just – it's kind of funny. You can look it up on YouTube. I did. It was a good morning laugh. I'm so sick of pork barrel politics, by the way. She went to a town of uh, Moquita, M-A-Q-U-O-K-E-T-A, Iowa. Right? Yeah, Moquita. It's a town of 6,000 people. She's yeah. supposed to have a meeting where she sits down with some veterans and talks to their concerns. How many concerns. people would show up from a town of 6,000? 10? Yeah, you think maybe 10, 15? Right. She had one this little tiny room in their city council, whatever. They're full, hundred people packed in. People out in the hallway waiting uh, to get boy. in. No and by room. The pig farmers, probably, and or corn. That's, That's true. And and so she's standing. They're yelling stuff at her like just one term because this is mm. her first term. Then she's going to get out. So play the audio here. Well, I, let me. She actually left after forty five minutes. 
It just devolves into something that's unproductive. Yeah. She talked to – in the 45 minutes she was there, she talked to one person that wasn't a veteran, which I think kind of ticked people off that we're actually – there's a lot of people here. Right. But she's only talking to – the meeting was supposed to be for veterans, but other people showed up and she only talked to those people which who were, were is, supposed to be there. Some people are claiming that those other people are organized, uh, you know, sure. rabble-rousers. But – if you if most of the people that I, that have been talked to are organized from that general area to show up to talk to their right, right. They're not like senator. busing them in from Detroit. Yeah, but I guess this is this this is look at democracy. It's totally happening. It's interesting. She uh, there were people waiting in line to talk on the microphone. Mm-hmm. What they're saying the big criticism for her she's going to every county in Iowa. Yeah, but at her events there's more livestock than people. <laughs> Right, so it's like she's it's, trying to protect herself and not yeah. have a lot of people to talk to. Maybe right. see more cows and pigs, but but again, she. I bet you she was elected with like sixty percent of the vote. Right, seventy percent of the. So vote. she knows she's safe, and these yeah. people are just. And causing, it's like the Chaffetz yeah. example, where everyone that hates him can turn out. But this is where the Democrats yeah. went wrong in '09 with yeah. the same sort of idea. Like, well, the most most of the people voted for me, so I'm okay. You're and then good. by the time You're the good. midterms came mm-hmm. around, midterms are where this always happens, right? Yeah. There's always a flood of. There's a backlash. A backlash. So there's a lot of very afraid candidates. But I think we can get some good lines, get some good comedy out of some of this. This could be really fun. And people will sit down like Elizabeth Warren. This is America in action. Midterms were always tough for me. We're not talking about tests. We're we're talking about votes, Hmm. midterm elections. I think all those people were really upset because they thought they were coming to see the Lego Batman movie. (laughs) They they all just found out they got a, a seat on the front row. Did you hear how mad they all were? I feel so bad for you because you were so excited. Man, were you excited to go to that movie and then the only seats left are on the front row. My mother-in-law fell asleep. She did. Well, because the only way to see the screen is to fully recline I, in I the bet, seats, yeah. one of those fully reclining yeah. seats. She probably actually cut off her carotids and um, actually lost blood to her brain. Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm a doctor. Once you lose blood flow to the brain, you're very likely to just pass right out. Man, we got a great show for you. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happens if you get uh, ISIS out of, out of their caliphate, off of their land, and they no longer have a city to live in. What happens to the ideology? Does it just disappear or does it morph into something else? We'll be talking about that up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, extremist groups have always had a big part in our history. Although the infamy of their actions have lived on, the groups they were a part of have not. 
Is this the same case for the Islamic State? And so here to speak with us today is Dr. James L. Gelvin. He's a professor of history at UCLA and specializes in Middle Eastern history. He also specializes in nationalism and social and cultural history of the modern Middle East. Dr. Gelvin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is, uh, I think, such a fascinating topic because we, we, we've we heard about the battles, the wars with ISIS or ISIL or IS. And I, I, I guess the question is when they're losing ground, and it sounds like in Mosul and other places, uh, the military, they seem to be having more success than, than historically. Um, as If they lose their ground, are you suggesting that they actually could just go away? Well, there are a number of possibilities of what will happen. I mean, first of all, for your listeners, we do have to differentiate between the caliphate itself, the territory, the administration of the territory, and ISIS as an ideology. Right. Now, it appears you know, fairly certain that the caliphate is doomed. Uh, we have, at this point, an ongoing uh, uh, attack uh, by Iraqi uh, forces and others as well, uh, on the western part of Mosul, it looks like that will fall within a couple of months. And then it's on Taraka, which is the actual capital of the Islamic State. Now, once that happens, uh, the Islamic State will cease to exist as an entity. But the problem is uh, whether or not uh, there will still be true believers. And there's a number of scenarios out there for what might happen. Mm. First of all, some people say that ISIS uh, might go underground to reemerge later. Now, that's very improbable simply because uh, it neglects the, the unique set of circumstances that gave rise to ISIS in the first place. Right. Uh, the Syrian civil war, the collapse of the Iraqi army, the... Uh, government of Nouri al-Maliki in Iraq that created so much animosity uh, among the Sunni population of Iraq, etc. So that, that scenario does not appear to be the one that, that we're facing at the present time. There's also the idea that ISIS will set up shop elsewhere. Uh, people have suggested, for example, in Libya or in Yemen, states that have failed in which there's a political vacuum. That's also not particularly uh, likely, simply because ISIS is being mopped up in various areas, uh, mainly because uh, ISIS does not play well with others. <laughs> uh, other groups within the jihadi movement, al-Qaeda, for example, or other uh, you know, governments or uh, just uh, nationalist organizations, uh, you know, uh, ISIS does not bring them in, into a, a, a large tent. And so, therefore, uh, they are not apt to uh, follow ISIS. And as a matter of fact, we see a whole group of, uh, of these various organizations that had joined ISIS splitting. I mean, Boko hmm. Haram, for example, right. in Africa. Um, it pledged allegiance to ISIS, and immediately what happened was there were large-scale defections from the organization. So it's not likely that they're going to set up elsewhere. A third scenario is that uh, ISIS will morph into an insurgency, fighting, for example, the Iraqi government. Now, that, of course, is, is entirely possible. But if ISIS does that, if it turns away from the goal of establishing a transnational caliphate, it won't be ISIS anymore. Right. It'll be just like any other jihadi group that fights against various organizations, like, for example, uh, 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 various uh, al-Qaeda affiliates that fight against, for example, the Syrian government or uh, the uh, Iraqi government. That's not something that uh, ISIS followers signed up for. Well, and it seems like that, that would be harder to organize as a 
group. It would just be pockets, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, and yes and no, actually. Uh, simply because when we think about ISIS, we think about the religious stuff, and mm-hmm. we think about the ideologues like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the, the caliph of the caliphate. Uh, we don't think about the people who actually gave ISIS muscle, which were people who may or may not have been true believers, uh, military people, former uh, officers under Saddam Hussein. Now, this, their uh, joining ISIS was the, one of the reasons why ISIS had it, it political victories, uh, that, excuse me, uh, military victories that it had early on. They, they, they were trained professionals who knew how to mount a campaign, for example, against the Iraqi government. Now, it's, it's most likely uh, that um, uh, one of two things will happen to ISIS's followers and, and ISIS itself. Number one, people will just sort of like give up or move on to other criminal activities. I mean, a lot of people join ISIS not for the ideology, but for the thrill of participating in these criminal practices. Huh. And if you actually look at it, I mean, you, you, the ideology of ISIS and their propaganda reflects a, almost a criminal, a gang-like um, ideology. I mean, for example, um, they uh, have this aggressive machismo, for example. Uh, they believe in redemption through violence. They have an extraordinarily patriarchal attitude towards women who are considered objects and even sex slaves for them. This is sort of the counterculture of the criminal underground. Criminal underground, uh, and so this is why so many people have joined um, ISIS from, for example, populations that have been shunted aside, for example, in Europe. Hmm. The it's, final scenario, or yeah. possibility for ISIS, is that uh, there will be a continuation of lone wolf ac- attacks such as those that occurred in San Bernardino and Nice and various other places. Now, many of these attacks were not authorized by ISIS Central. Um, There were people who pledged allegiance to ISIS a short time before and then undertook them. Now, that is a possibility uh, uh, occurring for uh, not the indefinite future, but the immediate future. And I want to differentiate between those two, because in the indefinite future, um, the inspiration for lone wolf attacks comes from ISIS propaganda, and the propaganda mill will probably be destroyed in, 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 in the short term. And also the idea of um, people sacrificing their lives for a goal that is obviously unattainable uh, is something that uh, is not going to inspire a uh, large group of followers, a large group of lone wolves. So probably over time, that sort of thing will peter out. Wow. It, I mean, the idea that you can almost see it, 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 it really is, it sounds like, so much more of um, kind of a really large wave, uh, like Pokemon Go, <laughs> like a marketing concept that might have a hard time sustaining if if you can't get in the malls, if you can't get in certain places. And then it's just the ideology that that might fade. So it sounds like the the ground will be lost or could be lost. Once the caliphate is lost, then it's just how do you keep the ideology alive? Right. Uh, And uh, as a historian, I look for historical examples of this sort of thing. 
And if you look back at the anarchist movements of the uh, 19th and early 20th century, you see the same thing, that you had a lot of lone wolf attacks, you had people who were inspired by an anarchist ideal. But over time, uh, law enforcement, and this is when, for example, the FBI uh, began in the United States uh, to combat the anarchist threat, um, uh, international cooperation to wipe out the anarchist threat, um, giving in to some of anarchist demands, for example, uh, making sure that uh, there was a welfare state there, an expansion of employment benefits, and that sort of thing as well. All these things uh, made it so that uh, the anarchist movement itself slowly began to lose adherence. And as I said, probably the most important reason why it lost adherence was the fact that people are not going to be willing to uh, engage in high-risk uh, activities, uh, activities that will probably end up killing them, with no payoff or the payoff somewhere way down in the future. Mm -hmm. So like every other intellectual fashion, anarchism and jihadism will probably uh, end up on the uh, dustbin of history. Because it sounds like one of – and this is something President Obama talked about a lot, that you don't win the war um, just by bombing. You have to take on their assets. You have to decrease their economics and you have to decrease their land, their ground. But then you have to deal with the ideology. So if it really sounds like we're kind of gaining economically on them. We're shutting off their financial supplies, but we're also taking away their land um, and the caliphate that, w that had been semi-established, I guess. Um, is, what, what does this look like going forward then? Going forward, I think there are two things that are very important for your listeners to, to think about, uh, which has been uh, misconceptions that have been put out there and over and over have been uh, argued for, and uh, neither of them are true. The first is that ISIS represents an existential threat to the United States. It doesn't. Mm. Uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War represented an existential threat. They could have obliterated American cities. ISIS, unfortunately, will probably take more American lives before it is completely, uh, before the whole thing is completely over. Yet, it will not do anything to destroy uh, the United States overall. That's number one. Number two, the idea of the refugees, many of whom have fled ISIS control. Uh, during the campaign, for example, it was said, we don't know who they are. And uh, even now, we should cut off, uh, you know, refugee flows from the United States uh, until we know who, who they are. We know exactly who they are. Hmm. Uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has done censuses of these people. What they find, found out is that uh, uh, refugees are evenly split between men and women, that 50%, uh, 56 percent of them are under the age of 17, and that 39 percent of these are under the age of 11. That's hardly a threat. We also know that uh, a, a large number of refugees, in one camp alone, there was over 85 percent, have some sort of professional degree. Hmm. Now, I mean, this is good for uh, where the refugees will uh, end up, and the largest concentration of Syrian doctors now is no longer in Syria, oh, it's boy. in Germany. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's also bad news for Syria, right. simply because these people will not be there to rebuild. Oh, man. So uh, not, not an ex existential threat to the United States, and the refugees uh, are not what we say they are. <laughs> I mean, they're not right. as dangerous and... And un, uh, unwieldy as we think. 
interesting discussion. We're speaking with Dr. James L. Gelvin, uh, history, a professor of history at UCLA who specializes in Middle Eastern history. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion about what's next with ISIS and uh, what we should be focusing on. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about possible outcomes uh, if there is an end to the Islamic State. Um, Dr. James L. Gelvin joins us. He's a professor of history at UCLA, specializes in Middle Eastern history. He also specializes in on nationalism and the social and cultural history of the modern Middle East. Dr. Gelvin, again, thank you for being with us. Again, thank you. This is um, so you basically propose that there's there's five possible outcomes um, or potential outcomes when it comes to what happens going forward with the Islamic State. If it actually continues to lose its power, it could either then go underground, lose its caliphate, go underground, go elsewhere, morph into an insurgency, disappear, just go away or just stay as lone attackers around the world. Um, and I guess because al-Qaeda, didn't, did al-Qaeda morph into ISIS? Well, it didn't morph into ISIS per se, but ISIS's roots can be traced back to al-Qaeda. Uh, it can actually be traced all the way back to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that gave rise to uh, various uh, jihadi groups, hmm. including al-Qaeda. And one of the organizations that uh, uh, came out of that, as well as al-Qaeda, after the American invasion of Iraq, was al-Qaeda in Iraq. And al-Qaeda in Iraq was ideologically very different from al-Qaeda, because they spent most of their time not waging war against the United States, but waging war against Shi populations of of Iraq. Hmm. Uh, they wanted to make Iraq ungovernable by doing tit-for-tat sort of strikes on Shis, and then Shis would attack Sunnis and that sort of stuff as well. And they also wanted to mobilize the Sunni uh, population. Now, al-Qaeda, um, al-Qaeda Central, what we call it now, al-Qaeda in the badlands of Afghanistan and Pakistan, they were horrified at this because they said, look, you know, our enemy is the crusader Zionist conspiracy against Islam, not, uh, you know, Shis, that these are people who we should recruit to our cause. Uh, so there was this definite split. Uh, the other aspect of the split between al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS is the fact that uh, al-Qaeda has kicked the caliphate can very, very far down the road. <laughs> yeah, they weren't um, going for that. Right. I mean, basically, at this point, what they're trying to do is what they claim is vex and exhaust their enemies by drawing them out into these long wars that are unwinnable, like the Soviets in Afghanistan, for example, or the Americans in Iraq. Uh, This is what their scenario is. And this is why they commit all these terrorist attacks abroad, is basically to uh, rile up the hornet's nest and to uh, create a situation in which the, uh, their enemies will do something stupid, which we've been more than happy to oblige them with yeah. time after time. So, I mean, that's al-Qaeda. ISIS is very, very territorial. 
Um, they believe that you can't really be a Muslim unless you have a, a, a practice Islam under a caliphate. And so that's what they've been attempting to do. Now, the strengths and weaknesses to this, uh, they have the ability to mobilize populations and to harness the resources um, of a territory by having a fixed territory. On the other hand, they, point, they paint a really big bullseye on their back. We don't know where Al-Qaeda Central is. As I said, it's somewhere in Badlands, in, you know, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, that area as well. But we know exactly where ISIS is. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because So you're not going to – I mean, because, because you've destroyed their land, the, the, you've taken back Mosul, you, you take back Raqqa eventually, um, I, I guess – then it becomes just the battle of the ideology. Is it, is it possible to snuff out the ideology? Well, I don't think it's possible to snuff out the ideology, but I do think it's possible that the ideology itself is going to, over time, fail to attract adherence. Hmm. I mean, we're, we always focus on the brightest and the shiniest object that there is out there. And this is why, for example, we didn't see the Arab uprisings take place. Uh, we, we, we didn't predict them at all. Who would have thought that, for example, tens, hundreds of thousands of Arab citizens would go out in the streets demanding democratic rights, uh, demanding uh, uh, human rights, uh, and the uh, removal of their oppressors? Now, of course, everyone except maybe Tunisia has failed, every one of these uprisings. But these things, that's to be expected. These are entrenched states, and it's not going to be easy to overthrow them. But the important lesson to learn out of the Arab uprisings is that while we've been focusing in on this glittery object of jihadi Islam, of people who are committing atrocious acts in the name of religion, while we're focusing on that, something else and probably more important was taking place in the Middle East, which is that global norms of human and democratic rights spread to the Middle East Hmm. and engage populations there. Wow. So what does that mean going forward? Going forward, it means that um, the autocrats who are still in place after 2010, 2011 should watch their backs. Yeah. Uh, Two, I guess I look at it, though, it's, again, ironic, I guess, that as democracy kind of starts getting hold in the Middle East – um, they then look back to the United States, one of, you know, the, 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 the great carrier of democracy, and yet we are now tightening down. I guess most of the Western states are starting to, you know, pro- be more protective of their countries, be more nationalistic in a way, and actually shutting more and more people out. Uh, that's, that's true, and it's, it, it is very unfortunate, or it, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it in terms of the fact that our attempts to spread democracy via uh, overthrow, uh, overthrowing Saddam Hussein, for example, or by invading a country, or this, that, and the other thing, they've been abysmal failures. Yeah. Democracy doesn't spread that way. Democracy spreads when populations demand it. And, you know, by setting an example, by being there... As that shiny light, for example, shining light, for example, that you know the Puritans right. called America, that is something that's probably more important than uh, what we did, what we did in the past. Now, Donald Trump, of course, does not want to get involved in foreign adventures, and you know, 
great for that. Uh, Barack Obama also, before that, however, um, also wanted to, uh, what he said was to get out of the Middle East, have a lighter footprint in the Middle East, and pivot to Asia, where the future is going to be, he said. Uh, Hmm. The 21st century is going to be made in Asia and not in the Middle East. The Middle East is an incredible drain on American resources, uh, and it's unfortunately has been a sinkhole for American money, for lives, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, both the Obama and the Trump uh, administrations had the same basic idea, strategy towards the Middle East, which was not to get involved in individual quarrels in the Middle East. Unfortunately, uh, the Obama administration had an overall strategy, which was to engage with um, uh, East Asia, and you had TPP and various other things as well coming out of that, uh, whereas it doesn't appear that the Trump administration has an overall strategy. Yeah, you don't see a, necess- a pivot to Asia, do you? No. As a matter of fact, <laughs> we've done everything possible, right. not only to uh, uh, make it so that we can't really talk to the Chinese anymore, but to alienate, for example, long-term allies like the Australians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It's a, It really is a... Uh, it's just crazy time. Um, talk about as we wrap up. What would you What would you advise? Uh, I guess about mainly the Middle East now to to continue to progress to progress against ISIS and and diminish the their territories, but also their economics and their ideology to what degree is possible. What would you be advising the president to do? Well, we are engaged now in a war against ISIS, and whether that was the wisest thing to do, I'm not really all that sure. It's, uh, I mean, Obama had a strategy in the beginning, which was to contain ISIS and slowly push it back. That was working, but as soon as ISIS began to lash out globally through terrorism, you know, the American population wanted immediate results. Mm-hmm. And hence now what we have is this war that you know, the United States is participating in against ISIS. I would recommend that uh, we view ISIS as what it is, uh, and as a matter of fact, we view terrorism as what it is, which is a criminal enterprise, uh, as opposed to something that we should make war on, Hmm. uh, and that uh, we should be vigilant against it, we should strike against it wherever we can find it, but we should also understand that like any other criminal enterprise, uh, murder or you know, drugs or what have you, we're not going to eradicate it. Uh, it'll always be there, and that's unfortunate. Uh, and uh, I think that that would be a, a smarter strategy for the United States in launching a global war on, on terrorism. I mean, one, one journalist uh, put it very, very interestingly. He said, the United States is very successful when we make war on proper nouns. Germany, Japan, <laughs> yeah, right. etc. Yeah. But when we try to make war on common nouns, such as drugs, poverty, terrorism, we fail miserably. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Sure is. And, yeah, I mean, you're fighting the wind. Yeah. It's, it's a lot harder. Wow, interesting stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Gelvin, Dr. James Gelvin. Keep up the great work and uh, excited to continue to read more about your your wonderful findings um, as as we move forward in this uh, war, air quotes, on ISIS. It's it's interesting. Proper nouns. It's easier to, in a way, take on a country than it is to take on an ideology. Lessons learned, hopefully. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends. McKenna Bausch joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice to be Our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well, I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I being, love – that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with, like English, English maybe Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language, mm -hmm. you lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to oh, understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still The thing is, though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages? Um, that's you know, part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these, you know, languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas. And as seawater levels rise, they ha these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities. And all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment – Changing, changing our languages and the culture. Yep, and taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's we have a word like love, mm -hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife, it's not the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> 
You know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that That just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up, dad. I'm like you want me to punch you. But he just it's just I don't know what it is. It's just being sounded hit. Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm-hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by you know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation mm-hmm. of different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, for years, right. they had forced education things. That they were these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages, and now nobody can. Yeah, and we are, and our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? powerful what we lose when we i mean seven thousand languages we could lose 90 percent of them crazy we'll take a break folks this is the matt townsend show helping you see the good in the world we'll be back this is the matt townsend show your guide on the side follow dr matt on twitter at dr matt show call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU this is the matt townsend show dr matt townsend now on byu radio byu radio welcome back laddies top of the morning to you dr matt here your coach your guide on the side joined of course by terry south and jeffrey simpson back from reno freshly minted from the reno valley that was exciting yep good to have you back we missed you. Did you? Terry asked twice, where's Jeff? I'm like, I don't know. Reno. We missed you. We missed your voice. We missed your warmth. And yet you still replaced me. Oh, yeah, like that. Actually, you you replaced you. Oh, yeah. You did a great job, by the way. <laughs> Way to like you when you aren't going to be here for the show. You always plan ahead. You think. You prepare. I like to surprise you. I like to keep you on your toes. You, on the other hand, you like to think through. I think I just like to daydream ahead to when I'm going to be gone. Well, I'm you... always thinking of my next meal. Are you? And yet, I haven't thought of what my last meal would be. You mean your last meal if you were if to I have run a last meal? Death row, or yeah. if I knew this was going to be my last meal? Why would you? Why would you even go there? That sounds dark. Ominous. Well, because I always like to be prepared when it comes to food. <laughs> so, what would your last meal be? Probably homemade tacos. Really? You fry the corn tortillas in vegetable oil. Mm. You sprinkle a little salt on them after you've taken them mm. off. 
And uh, yeah, Boy. try a little Mary's ground turkey. It's antibiotic free. What? See, you're, you're, it's you your care last about meal. Eat something horrible. It Dude, doesn't matter. Throw some antibiotics in your body, man. <laughs> it couldn't hurt. <laughs> I would not worry about that. And I wouldn't be eating turkey meat for my last meal. Sounds like I had you until ABF. Yeah. You're getting like the chair the next day. Just yeah. eat whatever. It's fine. Cheetos, go. What do you eat? I, I, uh, I would, I'd go with lasagna. Mm. You can't beat a really good lasagna. And I think I would just want to keep eating. I think my last meal, I'd want a buffet. And <laughs> just like, keep a couple boys. Just go Let's back go. <laughs> four times. Just keep eating and then choke on it, and that's how you go. Well, wouldn't that wouldn't that be a great <laughs> way to trick everybody? Ha ha! Take that. Well, um, luckily we don't have to worry about our last meals. But what what we could worry about is: Do you have meaning in your life? So what is the purpose, the meaning of your life? We're going to be talking about that. How to find meaning. The Power of Meaning is the name of the book, Crafting a Life That Matters. And our guest is going to teach us how to find meaning and purpose in life. Your purpose, obviously, food and movies. I just try to get out of bed at 5 o'clock. Yeah, that's hard. That's my big obstacle. Very hard. Nobody understands how hard it is to get out of bed every day at 5 a.m., except for all those that do it. (laughs) So true. Hey, today's a a wonderful day, by the way. It's World Thinking Day, the day you should be thinking uh, about different cultures, global concerns, broaden your awareness. It's also Single Tasking Day. Forget trying to multitask. Just focus on getting one thing done and doing it well. Fake news. Did you miss yesterday's See, here goes Jeff trying to multitask. Today was an excellent example, Jeffrey, because we were talking, you finished a story, and then I wasn't listening because I was multitasking. And I then asked you, so did they like the movie? And you said, yeah, I just said that. I literally just, as you, you just were thinking, that. I wonder if they liked the movie. I was saying they loved the movie. Yeah. Maybe I got the idea by you saying it. But I didn't – it didn't – I didn't bring it in. It's – I guess it's my fault. No, it's my fault. Today's also World Yoga Day. And as a tribute, we as a team, we're going to be donning our yoga pants. Terry's already got his on, sporting oh. some nice red yoga pants. Don them, you must. <laughs> and we're going to be doing a downward dog. Yoga. Uh, there's nothing better than seeing the, the cynic – in Terry Let's just deal with yoga <laughs> this is the guy that lifts like tires for his I workout do. I do but instead I you also need to... hit them with sledgehammers sometimes yeah. I don't know why we do that it doesn't seem to do anything but it's fun but it ri- yeah but you're ripped but sure. his mantra while he's doing that is namaste namaste eh, namaste this uh, <laughs> you'll be doing a downward facing dog you'll be doing the groaning chicken and the <laughs> the the epileptic cow yeah, epileptic yeah. cow yeah 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 you'll be putting the billy in the billy goat hmm. squat right by the way one of the greatest words ever squat, squat. <laughs> there's others when my uh, training coach said let's do some squats I'm like Gah. not interested <laughs> what <laughs> just right from the get go 
So we'll be talking about the power of meaning. Also, we will be celebrating Yoga Day as well. But first, before we get to all of this excitement, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer on Tuesday went after the news media for its questioning of the administration over Trump's condemnation of anti-Semitism in response to a recent wave of hate crimes targeting Jews. On Tuesday morning, Trump condemned anti-Semitism as horrible and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. Spicer was asked about a strongly worded statement from Anne Frank Center, which called Trump's comments a pathetic asterisk of of, uh, condescension. Uh, Yeah, condescension? Yeah, condescension. Sorry that. Spicer said Trump has always wanted to unite the country. It's it's ironic that no matter how many times... He talks about this, that it's never good enough. Um, Today, I think, was an unbelievably forceful comment by the president as far as his denunciation uh, of the actions that are currently targeted towards Jewish community centers. But I think that he's been very clear previous to this that he wants to be someone that brings his country together and not divide people, um, especially in those areas. Well, he was also very clear in not wanting to overtly say this strong comment until five, six, seven days later. Yes. It took him seven days to say it. It wasn't on Hol- strongly. It wasn't on the Holocaust Remembrance right, which, no, when, no. That, when these events were happening, right? right? He wrote a letter kind of Just all- say it. He's placating to certain crowds. He also retweeted anti Semitic type things during the uh, yeah. campaign and then they walk that back saying we didn't create these things, we just found them online. This was like a DTR with the nation. It's never good enough. Determine the relationship. He played the martyr there. Fine. We, we know it doesn't matter what we do. It's never good enough for you. So that was kind spicy of... Spicy Spicer. That was interesting. Yesterday, also, while welcoming while welcome, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, he received at... he. So Mitch McConnell, we, yeah. we played the audio before. He yeah. went out and talked to his people in Kentucky. Oh, and he got ripped. Didn't go well. He, uh, he received a warm welcome from the Anderson County Chamber of Commerce. It was uh, downright frosty outside where hundreds of protesters gathered chanting, Shame on Mitch. Shame on Mitch. <laughs> the Kentucky Republican is spending the week at his home state on Tuesday. He spoke with the Chamber of Commerce about rolling back regulations and the Affordable Care Act. Protesters assembled outside hours ahead of his appearance with one demonstrator, Debbie Rowe, saying she was there because she doesn't feel that Mitch McConnell represents the people of Kentucky anymore. I think he represents Washington and his own pocket. Safely inside the building, McConnell said that even though he disagrees with the protesters, he was proud of them for showing up. They don't share my agenda, but I respect their right to be there. There you go. See, that's how you handle it. And then you sneak into your private meeting. (laughs) You sneak in and shut the door, make sure no one gets in. (laughs) A commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard threatened Wednesday to give the U.S. a, quote, strong slap in the face if it underestimates Iran's military might. After taking office, President Trump warned Iran that he would be tougher Then his predecessor on the Islamic Republic and the country was on notice. If you remember, that's when uh, Flynn walked into the press conference for uh, the media in the afternoon and just said, you're on notice. And he walked out of the room with no clarification of what that meant. Wow. It was his only real public statements. It was a good one. quick 24 days. He nailed it. Uh, So that was after uh, Iran had a ballistic missile test last month. Or, yeah. The uh, the comments came as the Revolutionary Guard conducted three days of military exercises. (laughs) A strong slap in the face for the United States, if we underestimate. Yeah. Don't mess. And also another world power, Iceland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They've got a struggle. They've got a debate going on. So the president of Iceland, his name is uh, Gudi Johansson. 
because of course it's Goody. It's G or Judy G U D Judy 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 Judy. Judy. Oh, whatever. Yo, President Johansson, he's got a problem. He's got an issue with a specific. What's your what's the worst topping on pizza? Oh, anchovies. 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 Why would anybody ruin he's got, a pizza? He's got it? his own problem. He said he slams. Well, he's on a trip. Yeah. A student in a history class asks their leader questions about his personal taste on everything from his favorite soccer team, which is Manchester United, by the way. Sure, of course. And it was most loathed food. What, what food do you just dislike completely? And he says, when one student asked him what he thought about pineapple on pizza, he launched into a tirade explaining that he would pass a ban on the topping if he had the power. Really? He would go to governmental action to stop pineapple on pizza. No, pineapple is good. It's a fruit. He said, well, his approval ratings are as high as 97% in the country. So he figures that. He could get that banned if he wanted to, just don't, simply by doing don't. it. Don't. Goody, goody. So you're telling me you've you've eaten a slice of bread and thought to yourself, this bread needs pineapple. It needs if, fruit. If you put pineapple on bread, it would make it better. Pineapple and meat, I'll give you that. Pineapple on anything. Have you ever just had, like, Hawaiian pineapple? Oh, when we were in Costa Rica, pineapple with lime on it? Are you kidding me? Right. But then if so I want good. a slice of bread, I you eat know it what? separately. Bring me a biscuit. I don't care. Put whatever you want with that pineapple. Mm. So look for Iceland to uh, ban That's interesting. See, th- we've now started the Icelandic debate. Mm. Wow. That was a big mm by Jeffrey. <laughs> Okay, so Jeff's, Jeff's a no. We'll let Terry be the, the tying vote or the, the deciding vote. Jeff's McKenna, a no. McKenna's on my side with this. No, McKenna's on my side with this. Uh, so McKenna and I, that's two to two. You're on Matt's Jeffrey side? Jeffrey is pro uh, – he's anti-pineapple. No, I love pineapple. But you're anti-pineapple on bread. pizza. I love it on pizza and anything else. McKenna it. loves it on pizza. China has pineapple bread, See, listen, for crying out loud. Just because there are two great people doesn't mean that they belong together in a, in a marriage like that. What did, what did you say? I'll eat it. What, would, you, would you order it? Uh, if there are other options? No. That's the only thing on the plate. If, if, if you that's went, the only thing, would you order that? You went that? to a restaurant. They had pizza, but it or was only Jeff's pineapple Or Jeff's final pizza. tacos for his final taco world. Oh, I'd eat tacos. He, you'd eat his... I mean, I, I, I'll eat it. It's fine. I like it. But it's not like something I'm going to run to. I believe Terry's uh, opinion counts as two votes, and that means a win for us. For those listeners out there. I'm, I'm more like Donald Trump when it comes to peace in Israel. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Whichever Let's way just, you want to go with it. It's you great. You know what? We need to stop the anti-Semitism. We I'm need sorry, to stop but it. do you know how huge a whatever is from Terry? That's essentially if, a yes. If no. the table orders pineapple pizza, I'll eat it. Give us a call, one eight five five chat byu If you have an opinion on this, you call our hotline, one eight five five chat byu I would and you will be our deciding vote. Whoever the the first caller, one eight five five chat byu First caller in Pineapple Pizza. You decide. Pro pineapple on pizza, anti pineapple. If you're an anti pineappleist. And if you want pineapple, comma, pizza, then uh, I can talk to you. 1-855-CHAT-BYU. Give us a call now, please. Operators are standing by to save this and Iceland from the craziness of its president. 
He's unhinged. He's unhinged. He needs to be put in check. He has 90% success or 97% approval rate. Approval Who rate. has that? He's beloved. Putin? I don't know if Putin even has well, that Well, Putin eye. does in his own polls. I think he keeps it around 95 just so it looks, you know. Yeah. You don't want Yeah, you don't want to look like you're fake. Man. Okay, wow, that's just crazy news. 1855 chat BYU. So what do you what do you think? Is that is that something a president should have a, a strong opinion uh, sure. on or Yeah. Well, who was it? Uh President Bush senior, Herbert Walker Bush hated broccoli, so he wouldn't he allow broccoli in the White House. And the broccoli farmers of America were not happy yeah, with Yeah, there was a revolt. So the pineapple farmers of Iceland they're going to re- they're going to rebel. I don't know if there's a big No, have you ever heard of the Great Pineapple Rebellion? In Iceland? Yeah, it's happening yeah. here this morning. Crazy. <laughs> By one. It's a one-man stand. <laughs> 1-855-CHAT-BYU. It's a very easy phone number. And first one, first caller, we're, we're going to demand a call. First caller gets the vote. And it very well could be my wife if I text her. I love Canadian bacon. I love pineapple. But some things just don't go together. Oh, brother. They don't, shouldn't. Don't bring Canada into this argument. Canada, Iceland. <sighs> okay, folks, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the power of meaning. Do you feel like your life is is tied into meaning and purpose? Do you feel passion, excitement about what you do? When you go to work, do you feel a connection to a higher purpose? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We've had a little debate going on the show, um, and it's it's officially been solved. But we have to we have the tying vote on the phones with us. Megan joins us. Megan, are you there? I am. How are you, Megan? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Okay, here's the deal. So we were talking about pineapple on pizza because the Iceland, yes. the president of Iceland, is very anti-pineapple on pizza. I'm very pro-pineapple on pizza. I love it just nicely toasted with that juicy inner pineapple yum-yum. Uh, I'm pro uh, McKenna Baus is pro-pineapple. Two anti-pineapplists. Uh, Jeff likes pineapple, but he also um, – he likes it, but he doesn't like it on pizza. And Terry was indecisive and didn't care. So, Megan, what is the final vote? Should we be putting pineapple on pizza or not? Pineapple all the way. Yes! Yes! The crowds are going crazy. Okay, now why, Megan? What, what is it about pineapple on because the pizza? Because it contrasts with the spiciness of the sauce. Mm, yes. So you have a little sweet yes. and spicy, and it's especially really good if you also put pepperoni on the pizza. Ooh, so, pe- so pepperoni and pineapple? And pineapple. Yes. And any Canadian bacon. Do you want to throw the Canadians under the bus today? Um, I'm not a big fan of the Canadian bacon. Okay. It depends on if I'm dieting or not. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you, if you're dieting, you can eat as much pizza as you want as long as they're just pineapple, right? <laughs> so wait a minute. She's saying pepperoni and pineapple. She's just going rogue. Nobody she's, does no, that. No, no, no. No, no, she's, no, I like it both. No, both ways are good. Yeah. But. Don't you love just the little explosions of pineapple sweet juice into your mouth? Yes, the juice. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's warm. It's like grilled pineapple. Oh, Megan. Grilled pineapple is so good. Who couldn't eat enough? Who couldn't just eat grilled pineapple their whole life? I could eat it all day. Totally. And it's good for you. And it's (laughs) it's a diet food because it comes off a tree. Even if it's on a pizza. Boom. Is that the criteria? Yeah, that's it. Megan, where are you calling from? West Virginia. West Virginia. Well, Megan, thanks for being here. We have one of our producers from West Virginia. You don't happen to know her, do you? Lauren Simpson. Well, we got rid of you. Sorry, Megan. Uh, but uh, our, our shout out to those our friends in West Virginia. Let me tell you something really quick before we get to our guest. Mm-hmm. I like listening to this show. And I also like to do some sit-ups. But I would never do sit-ups while listening to this show. Why? Because it would be a miserable experience. I don't know how to take that. Like I said, I like those two things separately. I would never marry them together. So you're saying people can't work out during my show? They shouldn't. <laughs> I totally agree. Nobody should be working out. They should out be sitting down with a bag of potato chips and uh, doze off. Mm-hmm. Some Cheetos. Okay, so here's our next guest. So think about it, and I need you to answer this question if you're listening out there in listener land. Are you ready? Why are we here? Why are you on this earth? How did you? How do you know what you're supposed to bring to this world, to this life? These questions have been asked for centuries and have brought uh, together many – have been brought together in many libraries of work from professionals of every background. Everybody's trying to answer the purpose of life, the power of meaning in our lives. So our next guest has compiled those thoughts together along with her own thoughts in her own book, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Our guest is the author uh, Emily Esfahani Smith. Emily Esfahani Smith, and she joins us today to talk about the power of meaning in our lives. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. This, to me, is one of the most important topics of life, and we don't ever seem to address it. Um, we've got to have meaning in life. Talk to us about meaning and and kind of your definition for why meaning matters. So I, I was inspired to write this book because I I felt that there was this kind of overemphasis in our culture on happiness and, and, you know, why we should all be happy and have a good life. It's a happy life. But the way I saw it was actually that most what most people really want is meaning, and that's why they kind of devote themselves to stressful and effortful projects and pursuits from raising kids, starting a business, to volunteering. And... So that that was being left out of the conversation. So I, I wanted to kind of dig in to what it meant to lead a meaningful life. And the definition that I used in my book, The Power of Meaning, is a me- meaning. the meaningful life is defined by connecting and contributing to something that's bigger than yourself. Hmm. So if happiness is kind of about you and how you feel, meaning is about how you can give and connect to the world. And does it are there payoffs other than just you know you you like what you're doing what are the benefits of actually actively trying to connect in and contribute to something bigger than you well it's interesting you know as i was saying about happiness you know everyone thinks that they should be happy but when people pursue happiness it actually makes them feel unhappy and, and can make them feel lonely as well but when they pursue meaning, when they do things that make their lives more meaningful, they experience this kind of deeper and more enduring and complicated form of well-being down the road. 
And there's also, so, you know, so, you know, you could say that pursuing meaning can actually make people happier, but there's also other benefits like, you know, students who have meaning are, get better grades and are more, more motivated at school. Um, meaning has been associated with all kinds of health benefits from having a stronger immune system to, to living longer. Um, pe- people who work, if they have a sense of meaning at work, they're more engaged and more productive. So the benefits of leading a meaningful life really do cascade to all the different parts of your life. It's funny because, yeah, you think that, you know, you just you just want to chase the happiness like this concept of what you know once i've got it then i'm there and life is good but it's more it's really i guess it's more about connections and and purpose is it how do we i guess go about finding it maybe that's the problem is many people struggle knowing what makes them passionate or what produces the meaning in life so I, you know, that that was exactly the question that I wanted to answer in my book. So I set out to kind of understand how exactly people can lead meaningful lives. So I interviewed, you know, dozens of people all across the country. I turned to, you know, what kind of philosophy and religion and different ancient wisdom traditions said, and also looked at uh, the new social science research that, that's been kind of conducted over the last decade on meaning. And I found that there were these four building blocks of meaning that came up again and again, no matter, you know, who I was talking to, if they told me their lives were meaningful, they were usually telling me a story about one of these four things. Hmm. So the first one is um, belonging, so having a sense of belonging. Uh, The second one is purpose, uh, so a goal that involves contributing to the world or to other people. Uh, the third one was storytelling, and, and this is really about your own life story. So how you understand your narrative, how you think about the person you are and, and how you got that way. And the final one is transcendence. So these moments where you you feel a sense of self-loss and connected to something bigger. Hmm. And those are the four what? What do you call those? I call those the four pillars of meaning. They kind of, I, 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 I use the term pillar because it's, I think of them as these four pillars that kind of support a meaningful life. Belonging, contributing, uh, storytelling, and transcendence. Right, yeah. Belonging, I would say purpose, uh, storytelling, and transcendence. That's good. And um, as I think about it, yeah, because when you think of what matters and, and what creates meaning is it's almost it's about where you fit in. How you help others, how you see the bigger world, and how you connect to a higher power or purpose. I mean, that's exactly. that's how I generally think of it. So it's really how powerful is to, now because today's day and age, you know, we live in a weird stage where I can look around my living room at seven o'clock at night, and the TV can be on, and no one's watching it, and four of my family members are on their cell phones. Um, why does meaning matter or does it matter more today than ever? I think that there's there's a number of reasons. So one is that, we, you know, we're meaning-seeking creatures. Everyone wants to lead a meaningful life. But so many of our shared sources of meaning are no longer um, – they're no longer kind of in the public square. They no longer unite us, whether it's um, – kind of a, a shared kind of belief in a, in, a, in a type of religion or community or traditions. You know, these used to be the ways that people 
led meaningful lives. Religion gave people clear answers to what it meant to lead a meaningful life and, and what the meaning of life is. But, you know, the, the number of people who, who don't identify with religion, uh, who, who just don't, you know, they, they don't go to church, they don't pray, has been growing um, every year and in the developed world. So I think that people feel at a loss that there's kind of this burden to find meaning that's placed on ourselves because we don't have the clear answers anymore. So people need to find it on their own. And and I think what's been happening is that a lot of people have been struggling with this, and there's been this meaning crisis in a way. Um, I came across one study showing that there are you know 100 million people who don't have a strong sense of, of what makes their lives meaningful, what gives their lives purpose. And I think that this lack of meaning in people's lives can explain a lot of the the drift and despair that we see kind of overtaking society from from the fact that, you know, suicide rates reached their highest point in 30 years uh, last spring to the opioid addiction crisis. There's just this sense of despair and, and people feeling like their lives don't matter and don't have worth. And, and that, that's a crisis of meaning. Mm, so true. And and um, they, then you just see the shifts and the the ebbs and changes in in tide of of life i mean so if you if you got your identity and your meaning from obama you're you're in trouble if you get it from trump you will be in trouble eventually because there's got to be more to meaning in life than a person or a thing right whatever the meaning is has to transcend time I think that, you know, for people who, who have some kind of transcendent idea of meaning, it's definitely your your sense of meaning in life is probably not going to be as ephemeral as, as someone who doesn't because it's like you say, you know, if, if we invest so much of our meaning in our relationships or in, in a purpose like a job that we have, those things can come and go. Um, but, you know, if you believe in something kind of infinite or something higher, then that's that kind of grounds your sense of meaning. Mm. And really, um, I guess, too, part of the meaning that you brought up is that you belong. I mean, I know one of the basic human needs is to know you you fit in, that you, you're a part of uh, of a safe relationship core. Um, so talk about belonging for us, because like you said, there's a lot of people today in today's day and age that just don't feel like they fit in. That, 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 that's exactly right. So belonging is, you know, I think we tend to think of belonging in terms of kind of tribes and, and groups. So a sense of belonging with a political party or with um, uh, with a sports team, the fan base of the sports team. But belonging is, is really not about kind of groupishness. It's about being in a relationship or part of a community where you're valued for who you are. You're, you're intrinsically valued um, and, and people treat you like you matter. And you in turn value other people and treat them like they matter. And I think it's important to to remember, too, that belonging is a choice. So you can invite people to belong by forming a connection with them, whether it's it's your children or loved one or the person checking you out at the grocery store. Or you can kind of kill belonging by, by rejecting them and by kind of communicating to them in big or small ways that, you know, you don't think they matter right now, you, you don't value them. And and I think I, I just I think it's such an important point to remember because I think we all, without intending to, um, can sometimes destroy the pillar of belonging with other people, which mm. 
research shows um, actually people, when they're kind of rejected or when they feel that they don't belong, they literally rate their lives as less meaningful and they also rate life in general as less meaningful. And so this can be something as, as big as, you know, giving someone silent treatment and completely ignoring them after a, you know, after a fight and kind of literally saying, you know, you don't exist to me or as small as they're telling you about something exciting that happened to them today and you're kind of scrolling through your iPhone and not paying attention. So it exists in these little moments and, and, and we can cultivate it from the ground up. Yeah. Wow. And so really there's almost a social responsibility, um, an obligation we have to each other to to be receptive to others, to help them belong, to help them feel like they that they are in a community with you, that they really are valued enough that you'll listen to them. I mean, this is, I guess, why we hear of teen suicides, because they've been bullied, they've been ignored, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, sad. exactly, exactly. That, that, that's right. Boy, but what a powerful responsibility if we recognize that we have an important role to uh, to to facilitate helping others in their meaning with uh, by by helping them belong, helping them fit in. We're speaking with Emily Esfahani Smith, and she's the author of the book "The Power of Meaning: uh, Crafting a Life That Matters." We've been talking about the four pillars of meaning. We'll come back, continue the discussion, get some more uh, insight and help on how we can identify our own meaning in life and connect in and belong, feel purpose. Tell the healthy stories and transcend. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the best you can become. Stick with us. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about the book, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters, with the with its author, Emily Esfahani-Smith. You can go to her website, emilyesfahanismith.com, and uh, get more inside information about, not just about the book, but you can take a quiz about whether you have meaning um, or about the power of meaning in your life. Emily, thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Talk about... Um, the the reality it seems like with our in our lives is we're all constantly in action trying to find this thing that brings happiness. Um, but what you're talking about in the research on happiness is it might be more effective instead of chasing happiness to chase purpose or to chase meaning. That's right. So there's one study that I write about in my book that. Um, you know, brought people into the lab and divided them into two and told one group to go out and pursue meaning for 10 days by doing at least one thing each day that made their lives more meaningful. And then they told the other group uh, to go out and pursue happiness uh, for 10 days by doing one thing each day that would make them feel happier. And so um, they wanted, to, the researchers wanted to see how the pursuit of meaning versus the pursuit of happiness affects people's well-being at, at the end of the day. So after the study, um, the, the people in the meaning condition reported doing things like cheering up a friend, uh, studying for an exam, uh, uh, helping somebody out, or reflecting on their values. Uh, people in the happiness condition did things like uh, eating sweets, uh, sleeping in, going shopping, <laughs> yeah, like playing games. So... 
Um, so there's a, a difference in, in the types of activities. And what was most interesting, though, was that three months later, the people who had pursued happiness, there was no measurable difference in their well-being. So it was almost as if the things that they did had no effect on them as far as their well-being went. Whereas the people in the meaning group, three months later, they said that they felt more inspired and enriched on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. They felt connected to something bigger than themselves. Um, so, so there was something about pursuing meaning that had this kind of long-term effect that wasn't there with the, those who pursued happiness. Boy, and is it? Um, and I, I love it too because it takes it makes happiness kind of an emergent property, something that happens because of other things we're doing, not something you necessarily just set out to make happen. But can you can you set out to find your meaning, to find meaning in life? It sounds like you can. I, th- I think you can. So I think that, you know, when the, the meaning is about kind of, you know, connecting and contributing to, to other people, to something that's bigger than you are. And I, you mentioned that I have this quiz on my website that helps people figure out what their particular source of meaning is, what their pillar of meaning is. And I created that quiz because I think, you know, not all of us are going to rely on the four pillars of meaning, um, on all of them to kind of lead a meaningful life. Some people will find more meaning in belonging and relationships. Other people will find more meaning in experiences of transcendence, uh, kind of sacred experiences. Interesting. Uh, and so, no, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, so of those four areas you mentioned, belonging, purpose, storytelling, transcendence, one of those might be a better gateway for us to get to meaning. Exactly, exactly. That's right. And so, um, so you know, you, you can take the quiz and figure out what it is for you, and then think about steps you could take to build that pillar up in your life even further. Wow. Talk about, so let's kind of run through those. So belonging, you talked about the fact that you want to be in a relationship where you feel intrinsically valued, where you are connecting with others and accepted for who you are. Um, talk about purpose. How, how does purpose bring us meaning? Purpose is a kind of a stable and far-reaching goal that involves uh, connect, uh, contributing to the world in some way. So I think that the purpose can sound like a really a big thing. You know, a lot of people think, oh, if I define purpose, I have to cure cancer or write the great American novel. But purpose comes in all shapes and sizes. So maybe your purpose is indeed to cure cancer, but it could also be to, to be a good parent, to be a good colleague, um, to do random acts of kindness, to help a neighbor out. So, so purpose can kind of exist in big ways and in small ways. And the reason it makes our lives meaningful is because we, I think, you know, people want to know that what they do matters, that it's making a difference in the world. And purpose is, is the gateway to that. We, we do something good, and it's kind of this, this little legacy that's left after we've gone. Mm, that's cool. Talk about storytelling. How does our storytelling impact our meaning? So storytelling is the act, it's a meaning-making act. You're taking your life experiences and trying to weave them into a narrative that explains who you are and and where you came from. So it's really about kind of understanding yourself. yourself. Storytelling gives you clarity. It it gives you a framework about your life that kind of goes beyond the day-to-day. In in a way, it's like your personal myth. Hmm. So you're figuring out, but you you see yourself as the writer, not just as the actor who has to act out whatever's written. You're going to go write your story. 
Exactly. You're the, you're the author of your story, which means that, you know, you can choose what events to include, what events to not include, how to interpret those experiences. And this is really, this is really where it gets powerful because we all have the power to kind of tell our story in, in positive and healthy ways to, if we experience an adversity, for example, a traumatic event to figure out, you know, what, what meaning came out of that? What, how did that maybe make my, help me grow? Did it, was there any good that resulted? So we can kind of tell a story about it that helps us move forward. Hmm. And wow, that, I mean, that's, that's powerful in and of itself, right? Because it gets you through the yeah. tough times, but it also, it allows you to, to constantly keep adding and adding and adding to who you are. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, you're layering onto your identity, constantly growing more complex, uh, more deeper, more mature as you incorporate these experiences into it. Hmm. The last one you mentioned of the four pillars of meaning, belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. So transcendence I'm picking up is a little bit more of a, it's about spiritual focus. It's about a, a connection to a higher purpose or a higher sense of being. Maybe explain. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that's right. So people who have transcendent experiences, they, they they talk about how these how they feel connected to something that's more real than reality. So I think that what you said, like a higher sense of being, is exactly right. They um, they feel connected to something that's more real, and they also come back from the experience with a sense of clarity and and knowledge, like something they didn't know before, that helps them live a more meaningful life. So I, I spoke to a cancer, a, a woman who was dying of terminal cancer, and she told me that, you know, after this transcendent experience she had, her anxiety about death melted away. And the reason was that this experience made her realize that she is connected to something so much bigger than herself and that she'll still be a part of it after she dies. Hmm. And so that, yeah, so that, that really, um, it, it kind of just, it changed her perspective in a way that helped her find some peace. Wow. And and really, again, to get through the crazy world where there's tons of divisions, tons of change, everything's in flux, um, to be able to, to have that sense, really, I mean, I, mean I, I feel it in my kind of faith, my religious beliefs, but I mean, I know others can feel that just getting out to nature or just you know, hearing a, an incredible musician play something that's transcendent. That's right. You know, it's you can certainly experience transcendence within a religious context, um, prayer, meditation, but also, you know, within nature, just being aware of the world around you and, and the beauty that's right there at your fingertips. Mm. So if we if we see that there's four kind of pillars to it, and how do we, I guess, would one of these just more naturally resonate with us, whether it's about belonging, purpose, storytelling, transcendence? I could also see that they would also eventually start merging in a way. Absolutely. So, you know, some people find a, a, a sense of belonging by sharing their stories with others. Um, other people feel a sense of purpose by kind of giving love to others, so by cultivating belonging. So these pillars, they, you know, I kind of divided them into four, but they they overlap and they're not so they're not so separate and distinct. And a lot of the you know a lot of organizations that do a good job of building cultures of meaning, whether they're business or 
a religious organization, they interweave these four pillars into their very culture to help people lead more meaningful lives. Yeah, it seems like a, a really a, a, a great company to work for would focus on all of these, right? And and even yeah. So so you're connected to a bigger purpose than just making widgets. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's not very moving for some. Um, so, so if you, as we kind of wrap this up, one of the things I always uh, love and ask is what's the one thing, what would be the first thing we could do that would maybe have the biggest impact for us to go about connecting into our meaning? What's the one thing we could do that would make the biggest bang for the buck? I think that I would begin by asking yourself, what's what's one thing you can do to make someone else's life better today? Whether that means emptying the dishwasher for your husband and wife or, you know, helping your neighbor, you know, shovel the snow off of their porch. So just doing one act of kindness, I think, can, can kind of open open you up to meaning and, and to doing more acts of purpose. Boy, and tell me what happens in this world when all of a sudden we get Everybody doing one act towards their meaning yeah. uh, lifts the world. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, Emily. Thank you for your uh, your writing and your insight into this. Uh, I, I really feel like humans need it. And sometimes we get so caught up in everything else that we forget the meaning and the belonging and the purpose and the transcendence behind it all. Emily Esfahani Smith is her name. Go to her website, emilyesfahanismith.com. And the book, the name of the book, again, is The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Actually, we'll even get into fashion tips, just what you need from Dr. Matt. Stick with us. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome to the Wheatley Minute, featuring ideas that sustain core institutions, presented by the Wheatley Institution at BYU. Here is Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. You may or may not have looked up the mission statement of this fine university. You students, you really should, at least before you graduate. Here's at least the key sentence. To assist individuals in their quest for perfection and internal life. It isn't to make better economic actors to make people who are more successful. Perfection in eternal life. You! That's why this thing exists. The world doesn't understand that. The world can't understand that. When you state purpose, that's aspirational, and it's up there, and then you're trying to live up to it, you change your life, and you change other people's lives, too. To listen to the full lecture or to learn more about the work of the Wheatley Institution, go to wheatley.byu.edu. And listen to the Wheatley Forum addresses Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Eastern here on BYU Radio. You know, in this show, we like to give you tips to live healthier, happier, and better lives, right? But sometimes that entails not only feeling your best, but actually looking your best. So to help us out with that, we got our producer, Leanna Tan, to give us some of her fashion tips and faux pas. just in California over the weekend, and we did a lot of fun stuff. Rode roller coasters, ate our hearts out, went hot tubbing. But there's one thing that I love doing on road trips that just seems to make the trip special. Thrift shopping. 
It's so great. I mean, every thrift store is so unique, and you never know what treasures you'll find. Not only will you probably not find any of your purchases anywhere else, but each piece has a history. Sure, that history might include a dead grandma's attic and a lice infestation, but history nonetheless. So, sure enough, I found lots of treasures to take home. But let me tell you, it took a lot of sifting through random, weird, and utterly tasteless clothing to find them. Sometimes the scariest part of thrift stores are all the fashion faux pas. So, after that adventure, I decided this world needs a little more fashion advice. Okay, okay, I'm no Kim Kardashian, but I'll share a few things I've gathered over the years. Here are five fashion tips that just might save your wardrobe from ending up in a thrift shop. Number one, invest in a vest. Denim vests are back in style, and I'm so happy because they are my lifesavers. I used to despise wearing t-shirts out of the house unless I was volunteering at a booth or something. But then I discovered that I can pretty much roll out of bed and throw on a vest, and it actually looks like I put in some sort of effort into my outfit. You can dress up nearly any plain, boring shirt with a vest. Um, except men. I know very few guys in very few circumstances that can pull off the band t-shirt look. Usually, it just really looks like you rolled out of bed. Sorry. Number two, everybody needs black pants. I mean, who can argue with that? They go with everything, every color, pretty much every style. You can throw them on for casual wear or strut them for a business meeting. Plus, it lets your shirt and your smile have all the attention. Number three, layers. This is my favorite part about winter. If you can't decide which thing to wear, you can probably wear all of it and it'll still be okay. Plus, you have double the wardrobe because you can just throw on a scarf and sweater over your summer top and have a whole new outfit. In the summer, you can do the same thing with jewelry. I'm pretty sure the gods invented this fashion tip for indecisive people like me who don't know if they want to wear a short necklace or long chains or pearls. Well, now you can wear them all. Number four, junior high fashion is not a fond memory, but a distant, distant nightmare. And it should stay there. That means leaving behind studded bracelets, baggy pants, and please, please, those DC skater shoes. I never understood those. I think they were invented to make ankles look like chicken bones and children's feet look like Mr. Potato Heads. They shouldn't even have the honor of being in thrift stores covering up the actual thrift store treasures. I think the world would be a lot happier if they were just incinerated. And number five, no man or woman should ever, ever be seen in anything flesh-colored or bedazzled. No matter how much skin it covers, flesh-colored anything is borderline indecency. Plus, both these things are a public safety hazard and cause blindness whether that be due to self-inflicted scratching out of the eyes or trauma to the retina from the repeated refracting of light off that horrendous cheap plastic. Both should be banned. If you see these at a thrift store, run. Run the opposite way. It's not worth risking your dignity or the eyesight of those around you. (sighs) Well there. Now the world is five tips more fashionable. But most of all, just remember that fashion is always evolving. What you send to the thrift store today will be back on the catwalk in a couple years. So take risks. If you believe it could be fashionable, maybe it could be. How do you think those high fashion models pull off purple hair and goose feathers? I like to think that you can pull off pretty much anything if you wear it with confidence. That is, unless it's studded, bedazzled, 
or flesh-colored. Leave those in the incinerator. Well, happy thrifting, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Live from the Rocky Mountains, where we're receiving some beautiful snow. Just a beautiful... Thick snow. Love it. Life is good. How come we never get snow days here? Well, because it never stops. Radio must always go on. Especially sports radio, because they're here Monday through Friday. (laughs) If we take a vacation or if we have a holiday like President's Day, we just take it. Right. You know what I think we what we need to do is whenever we tell we remind Don that there's a holiday coming up, we get a day off. He has no idea. So maybe we just say, "Oh yeah, uh, March twentieth. Uh, it's a holiday. Oh, it's holiday, and they make up a holiday." Yeah, I think he might. And he would just he would let it slide. But don't you think if 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 everyone else were here working, and we weren't, they well, we say, would just tell him to make sure not to show up. Oh yeah, you won't. So want to he couldn't see. That's a good point. And then at some point, you just ask forgiveness rather than permission. Yeah, yeah. That's and then we'll the blame it on some employee that doesn't even work here. Right. Just say, yeah, uh, Janice. She told us that was cool. You never see her. She's she's here between midnight and five a.m. We might be underestimating our boss because <laughs> he he's actually the only one on the team that knows everyone's name. I mean, he knows everybody's name in the building. He's that good. I don't even know my team's name. Now you're just sucking up because he needs to talk to you after the show. I know. That's scary. He came in. He's like, Matt, come to my office after. He looked at you, smiled, shook his head, and said, we have things to talk about. It's like, ooh. Hmm. Yeah. Could be anything. And he said, not Terry, not Jeff. They're no. fine. Just yeah. you. I know. I, but I did – I think I did just put in a petition that we need breakfast mm. cereals and breakfast food served for the morning show. Just threw that out there. And maybe to make room for that, they're... Going to have to let someone go. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to miss you, Jeff. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Hey, today we're going to be talking about seven strategies for raising calm, inspired, and successful children. Hmm. Now, you two have uh, young children. My children are old. Yeah. 12 and up. Your kids are who they are at this point. Yeah. Mine are pretty much... Set in their ways. So there's hope I could possibly influence my child. But there's what do you think the odds are that I'm doing any of those seven strategies right now with my children? Well, I've already read through some of them, and pretty sure you're not. Oh, it. She she would not. I think our guest would not suggest a lightsaber. Okay. A lightsaber, soft lightsaber beating. Okay, but he laughs when I do it. Well, sure. Is it laugh or is it fear? Like, I better pretend like I enjoy it or dad will really mm. pull out a real lightsaber. Can you see where that could be confusing for me? Uh-huh. What about dark guns? Is that a, is that a no, good? No, no, no. Because what, one of our big points is we need to create calmness. Right. So learning and growth and development takes better place in calmness 
than intention. Hmm. Are you talking Nerf darts or are you talking the poisonous kind? Oh, Nerf darts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you seen him use the poisonous kind though? He's a great shot. Well, I could have sworn that there was one show where I blacked out for about an hour. Yeah, that was it. We were laughing so hard. One trip to Borneo. You're Do you remember all set. that? Yeah. yeah, that's where you got that Borneo dart gun. Yeah, blow dart gun. That's where. Yeah, you. We he got you right in the kisser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were good times. The Borneo Ultimatum. Do you see that movie? Oh, I love Jason Borneo. So I'm not doing any of the strategies to make. Calm I think you're doing a few, but you're, a few? I mean, you're, the deal is you're a great caregiver. You take care of him. He's healthy as can be. Right. It's just it's the calmness. It's the touch. He needs more touch from you. Is there any room for the occasional body slam on the couch? Well, that would not be the touch. I think our professional would suggest hmm. maybe more of a calm massage, more yeah. communication, more verbal. See, at, at some point. Cuddle. When when those sort of things happen, he asks me what's going on, what's wrong, Dad. Yeah, like what's wrong, Dad? Who like, died? Like last night, I just like reached over and like poked his arm. You goes, you poked him. He goes, "What are you doing?" Well, what would happen if you just like just touched him? Well, I, I, the like, other night, I, I gently, I gave him like a pat on the head, pat on the back, or yeah, something he like goes, that. What? What, Dad? What do you want? <laughs> Get off my back. <laughs> so you're talking yeah. like a back scratch, maybe a little cuddle, little okay. hug, a little hug. And then get him in that moment where he's calmer, and then that's a teaching moment. Once you've got him – because attention, she'll get into it, the research. Okay. Well, we'll find out. It's all good. That would be great if you had somebody that actually wanted to cuddle with you. Oh, here we go again. Wow. Every time it comes back to (laughs) cuddle. So you have a, you have a nice conversation that just goes one step. He's so sad all the time. It's all right. I feel bad. Hopefully you can make him happy. Well, actually. Next week, next week we're talking to a guy about happiness. Yeah, well, we just, yeah. But I think, I think what he needs and I think what he's asking for is just a little hug. So can you, producer, I'll, produce a hug? I have a staff. I'll find somebody. <laughs> no, don't use the staff. <laughs> I think David's free later on David. about 2 o'clock. When would you like your hug, Mr. Simpson? <laughs> I'd like it about 2 o'clock. Anywho, today, by the way, is World Thinking Day. Let's think bigger than our little minute, you know, world. Um, Also, single tasking day instead of multitasking day. Lots going on. And we're trying to get it all in. Today, we'll also be talking about empty news, give you some empty news headlines. Um, Be talking with our good brethren from the BYU Sports Nation. Their show is at the top of this hour. So you're going to want to find out what's coming up on their show. Also, do a little hero story. But first and foremost... Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Hospitals might be unfairly rejecting qualified medical students from residencies due to concerns over how President Trump's travel ban on seven majority Muslim countries could play out, according to the Boston Globe. As many as 1,000 students could be penalized based on their country of origin, despite possibly being the most qualified students available for their positions. The chief executive of the Association of American Medical Colleges Uh, Dr. Daryl G. Kirk calls the decision being made by hospitals to pick between the best candidates or have residents ready to go by July to care for patients a very impossible decision to make. You have qualified candidates or do you want to have someone that's going to make it through the ban? So maybe they're less qualified, but they're going to be available to be here to work. But like that's see, your wife's job is that very thing, getting these people 
their, their visas to yeah. get in here and get to school. But she doesn't know what to do because the the goals keep changing. Yes. They keep mm. moving the goalposts, keep changing the rules, so we'll see what happens. But yeah. And, and a lot of – I was watching the, uh, the news last night, and they said a lot of these people that are coming in to take these jobs in the medical fields – uh, they go to school when they're done. Kind of a repayment is they go to places that are understaffed, right? To be able to fill those positions for a couple of years in very, very kind of rural areas who need a doctor, right. and those jobs will not be be staffed. I guess uh, Republicans have faced hostile anti-Trump crowds at their town hall meetings across the nation, with some officials apparently choosing to forego the procedure rather than face what's sure to be a firing squad at their of their uh, constituents. Representative Dave Brad of Virginia is not backing down, though, and his latest approach Tuesday evening might offer his colleagues a potential blueprint for how to defuse the tension. Uh, town hall situations that have bedeviled, as it says here, Republican colleagues across the country. What he does is he has his staff rotate through the crowds and hand out index cards, have the people write down their questions. Then he has the local mayor of the town where he's visiting choose the questions that this (laughs) representative brat is going to answer. Okay, yeah. That's a smart plan. The, you get to stack the deck a bit. It says the local mayor picks which cards he'll read. Brat cheerfully plowed through the protests and heckling of the crowd, answering the questions he wanted to answer. He goes, I'm having fun, the conservative Republican said as the crowd of hundreds hurls insults at him. He goes, I like having debates. Now, he's not directly answering their questions, but... It's how he's choosing I like to do me it. some debate. Okay, that's good. Two Muslim American activists launched a crowdfunding campaign Tuesday to raise money to repair a historic Jewish cemetery in St. Louis that was vandalized over the weekend. Did you see the pictures of this? Yeah, all, all these headstones tipped over, yeah. all kinds of stuff broken. Within two hours, the fundraising campaign had twenty thousand dollars. Oh, cool! And they're continuing to to grow that way as they try to bring money. Come in on, to help those out. are things are expensive. The state of Tennessee is considering making it illegal to hit a protester with a car. Oh. Good. Isn't so, it illegal to hit anyone with a car? Similar driving laws have been proposed for uh, Indiana, Iowa, Minnesota, and North Dakota. What about an RPG? The Republican-sponsored legislation would protest or protect motorists from civil liability if a protester were injured, yeah. providing the driver exercise due care. What, what, what about what, is there any law about hitting someone uh, a protester with an RPG? No. Maybe uh, some blow dart nah. from Borneo. Why would you do that? <laughs> Okay. Do that. Just checking. And finally, just sort of a interesting story I found. Uh, costs associated with car crashes are outpacing premiums, increasing for some companies. Insurers say the use of smartphones to talk, text, and access the internet while on the road is a new and important factor behind those car wrecks. Oh, boy. So your use of a cell phone yeah. is raising premiums for your insurance. Now, this is yeah. interesting. The growing number of wrecks, this comes from uh, the chief executive of State Auto Financial Corporation, so like State Farm, I think, yeah. or something like that. Uh, he calls it an epidemic. The growing number of wrecks is swamping the much-heralded beneficial impacts of newer, safer vehicles. So they put all these safety features into your car. Uh, Usually that ends up in some sort of discount on your insurance, but because so many people are using their cell phones, they're, you're not getting any sort of discount it. because of that. We've had the guy on the show saying all this new technology is actually – it's taking it's harder for you to drive the car because yep. you now have to dial everything in and so this has nothing to do with my recent accident does it i don't know what was the situation circumstances was, I was it just fault? on my phone backing up yes, and totally. hit a car yeah. on your way to st george yes hmm. just but if you had my car your your phone would be 
hands-free, yeah. you could just talk into well, the air without having to hold it to your head. Okay, smarty I, pants. Okay, go ahead. But mine wasn't – I wasn't talking on my phone per se. I was plugging my phone into mm. my aux cords okay. and my charging cord while backing. Maybe put get your phone situated before you move the car. Oh, thanks, So you could focus Einstein. only on driving. You don't I have a Bluetooth? that out after. Well, you don't have I Bluetooth mean, for that phone? No, not for that car. Yeah, that car it barely has electricity. It It's a great car. He has the holes through the floor like Fred Flintstone. No, it's a perfect car. It's his brakes. No, it's a wonderful vehicle. He has really tough feet. Do you head on over a... to Bam Bam's Barbecue or <laughs> the bowling alley with the rock ball? A little brontosaurus rib. Mm. The Buffalo Lodge for your team, your your count, what your local meeting. So, uh, what, so your accident? Were you safe? Did you? Yeah. Did you hurt anybody? No. I mean, you seem to be in relatively I'm good in shape. Great it's hard shape. to tell, though. I'm You're... in great shape, and the person I. Allegedly, or let's not even talk about me. The oh, person okay. my friend allegedly backed into. <laughs> okay, he's fine as is his child. How's his Tesla that you ran into? Oh, okay, by or... the way, I, I, so I told you I really am going to get a Tesla. Right, someday. Well, read the hero story that we're going to share today. Huge. Guy, guy with his Tesla. But I saw a Tesla with a really big ding in it. Mm. Did it hurt your soul? Yeah, I felt. Hurt I felt deep sadness for the Tesla. Wow. Well, it's... why? Why? What did the Tesla do to anybody? Love the Tesla. I do too. Hey, uh, France has they're, – they're, they're getting smart about all these drones. Did yes. you see the NBA All-Star game where the guy had a ball delivered by a drone? And then failed to actually execute the yeah. dunk. Yeah. Well, the hard part is bringing the, the ball in with a drone. Yes. The dunk was the easy part, but he had a harder time with that. Yesterday, UPS debuted a video I of how that. they want to deliver their uh, – That's kind of cool. Now, the video they actually put out was some marketing thing, so it worked correctly. There was a video beforehand <laughs> where the, the they, they open the top of the truck to let the drone out, and the drone gets caught and just sort of tips over. And and just and the blades kind of, kind of grind down on yeah, the Yeah, so UPS it truck. kind of failed. They had to go fix the drone and then start the video It's going to be a cool but. day that your UPS truck comes up and then all of a sudden like a, mo- a rocket launcher mm. appears out of the top of it and shoots the drone out in the air. Saw so on the news in Iraq, the U.S. government has these guns that will shoot a microwave burst yeah. and will disrupt the drone. As ISIS is now trying to That's experiment huge. with drones. That's huge. So then the reporter goes to the Iraqi military and says, hey, has the U.S. provided these kind of guns? The guy goes, uh, no. 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 Did you hear? No. Did you watch? We don't have those. Did no. you watch to the end of the video? Because it not only shoots a microwave burst to bring down the drone, it can also heat up a hot pocket in one minute. Wow. On the battlefield. Not the traditional two minutes. Yeah. So it'll still destroy the roof of your mouth. Though. Oh, yeah. Hot pocket. But you were talking about France. Oh, yeah. Back to France. Uh, France has recruited eagles to start taking down drones. Welcome to the, Hotel the Eagles Band apparently are now employed in France wow. to drink. Might be a I, different. I think it's a different eagle. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different eagle. Like this? Uh, that's the I eagle. Thought, yeah. I thought yeah. that sounded weird. Yeah, so apparently what they're doing is they're training these eagles to now chase down in the urban airspace, a drone, hmm. and and it, which is hard because they've got these spinning blades. Right. So you got to train the eagle, and training an eagle is not as easy as it looks. I, w- I would guess not. The training for the eagles start before birth. The birds are placed on top of drones while still in their shells. Hmm. Yeah. 
and uh, they're kept there after hatching. So they just get them used to being with a drone. Do these eagles then believe that the drone is their mother? Yes. So in in reality, they're attacking their mother. So do they bring down the drone by just landing on it or does it say? No, I think they do what anybody does to destroy their mother. (laughs) They come home late. Yeah. They marry the wrong woman. They attack it with talons. (laughs) They get their talons out. The birds are trained to see the drones as prey. They receive meat as a reward for bringing down the drone. One drone, one steak, one nugget, one chicken nugget. Yeah. Maybe like a nice stew meat. Yeah. Mm, I love stew meat. Mm. Uh, The use of eagles was prompted after drones flew over French presidential palace in 2015 which is a sensitive military site, right? And yep. a sensitive military site. And you're not allowed to just start shooting guns all over the presidential palace. Right. So instead, get yourself an eagle, not the band, mm. not that there's anything wrong with the band. They just aren't probably going to bring down a drone. Would it be better to drop, say, a band member with a gr- guitar on top of the drone so it would, oh, no, like, hit cool. the guitar on the drone? Yeah, if you could get one up there. Maybe a drummer. Has what a, sticks and the, I mean you could think of ways band. you could think of ways a band member could really bring a drone down. What about the band? The band. Wow, it's another band. I think I'd go with sticks. I'd go with sticks or eagles. Those are two good bands. I don't, I've never heard of the band. Band. The band. The band. Well, if you ask Sean Spicer, he'll say it's not a band. It's not a band. He said band. Bam. Anywho, a little uh, empty news for you. A lot of of news stories, a lot of news shows wouldn't go into this story like we did. On purpose. Because they don't care about you like we do. France is taking care of it with the Eagles. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking seven strategies for raising calm, inspired, and successful children. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the show. You know, we live in a very fast-paced world that can be difficult for anyone to keep up with, especially children. Sometimes we then pack our kids' schedules so full in hopes that they will become smarter or more capable. In reality, maybe it's just, you know, doing the opposite of what our real goals are. We're just overwhelming them, stressing them out. Kids need time to relax and connect, and licensed speech and language pathologist Dr. Elaine Schneider says education should touch the whole child. Scientific research has shown that when a child is a is a is quiet and alert state, learning occurs more readily. And she joins us today to talk about her book, Seven Strategies for Raising Calm, Inspired, Successful Children. Dr. Uh, Elaine Vogel Schneider, thank you for being with us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Is it true? Are we are we stressing our kids out? It seems like we're overdoing it. There's a lot of stressing out going on, that's for sure. We've got children packed with activities, packed with everyday events that just seem to really stress not only them out, but even, you know, the adults as well. So we've got lots of stressors going on in this environment of ours every day, every day. And all for a purpose, it sounds like, of trying to make our, our children more successful, have as many opportunities as they can. And yet, I guess according to the research, if they're stressed, 
it's not mo- the most conducive state to be in if they really want to be learning. Exactly. Really what we see in, in research is that to really gain uh, learning activities, you really have to be more calm, more focused, and at more of a quiet alert state rather than something that's hectic. How do we how do we get our children because sometimes the image is that they're they're the opposite of calm we might maybe we're just missing those moments how do we get them to that more calm state you know in my book I share with families and even teachers because I really see that this is valuable in the school system as well as in the home environment that we can take just a few moments every morning or every day that we start out um, and and do some activities that really help calm what, uh, the amygdala. It's part of that brain that that gets us into our survival mode, and it's the one that we we talk about the the four Fs. It's like fight or fright or flight or freeze. So it's it's this system that we want to calm down. We need to calm that down, and by doing rather rather uh, unique and simple exercises. Uh, we can actually have that happen rather quickly. Mm. Give us some of those. What uh, What are some of the, the things that uh, your book talks about that would actually, you know, create the calmness, turn off the amygdala, the fight or flight, and, and bring on the calmer brain? Well, some simple ones that I, I share with everyone are the breathing exercises. That's one of the best ways to start, um, by making sure that we take deep breaths into our body rather than the shallow breathing that all of us do for most of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to get more of that oxygen going deep into the body, into the brain, and relaxing the different parts of that brain so that we're not in that survival mode of the fight or the fright, but that, we're more in a calm state. And we hear that a lot, Dr. Elaine, when, it, um, when we hear people coming on talking about anxiety and mindfulness, um, they always seem to go to the breathing, but it really, I mean, the breathing, it's what's bringing the oxygen. And if all of a sudden your body doesn't have oxygen, it seems like your fight or flight brain should be kicking in. And, and that's exactly what happens. And it's amazing how much of the day that we are in a tense mode and we're not letting a lot of breath in. And just doing some little belly breathing or making some activities fun where a child is pretending, you know, that they're blowing a dandelion or blowing a flower um, or even a feather so that they get to see that their breath does do something. You know, with little children, the concept is how do we show them that they even have a breath, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So, you know, showing them with objects, stuffed animals, putting things like even putting a little stuffed animal on a tummy as you show your child how to breathe in and breathe out and they can watch it rise and fall or just some little, you know, different ideas that people have shared with me over the years that I incorporate into some of the seven strategies. So breathing is really the number one strategy to start off with and it's probably the simplest one yeah. that can be used. And I guess too, as they get older, then it evolves into you know, breathing right before they're going to go give that talk in debate class or, I mean, and, and noticing how breathing can be a calming, create a calming effect. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then there's some other activities that um, can also be calming in a way, uh, such as um, 
activity of movement. I, I, in another part of the book, it talks about talking about movement and music and how those are also ways of relaxing the body and developing other habits that are calming and soothing. I know many times before I go and speak in front of large groups, I actually do some jumping jacks myself. Hmm. And, you know, I use that. Um, it's some movement, and it also helps with my breathing. So it's a combination of more than one activity that helps with calming as well. You, in fact, we see a lot of professional athletes wearing headphones, listening to music as they're warming up. Mm-hmm, and they, exactly. probably, they probably have some, you know, psychological benefit as it calms them down. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think it was Milton Berle or someone long time ago that said that, um, you know, that even the music or the laughter is some vacation you can give yourself. So it does get you away from the everyday moment into a different, puts your mind into a different frame and a different wavelength, and it does help with that relaxation. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Good stuff. So it's helpful. Yeah. G- give us one more and then we'll take a break. What's one other okay. thing we could be doing? Well, another one I, I like to look at is affirmations, is what do we say to ourselves every morning when we wake up? Are we in a negative mode where we're already, before we get out the door, we're talking about all the things we didn't do yesterday, all the things that we haven't accomplished? Or are we affirming to ourselves and absolutely to the world that, you know, I'm a wonderful person, I can make friends easily, um, it's a wonderful day and start looking at more of the positive thinking that we can put inside ourselves. So that's another, uh, another strategy that I offer is the strategy of affirmations, positive affirmations, believing in what you're saying, and saying positive things about yourself and about the world. And you could just create those affirmations with your kids and then repeat them with them? Is that what you do? You, you just kind of get them talking through a, a, a mantra or an affirmation? Absolutely. I I take a look and see what does this child need. For example, some children in school were having difficulty making friends. So an affirmation that I created for them was that I make friends easily. So that was their affirmation. They can see themselves making friends, talking about what is a friend, how do we enter into a conversation with a friend. So, And then the affirmation is I make friends easily. That was something that can be offered to your child. It's also looking at what what are they, you know, in a way in need of. Do they say, I can't, I can't do that, I can't do that. So in that case, for that child, something I would be saying is, I can do anything I put my mind to. And giving them that positive affirmation instead of the I can't do it, it's no, I can do it. Hmm. Yeah, no, and that's so simple, isn't it? And Oh, it's... We do it all the time with our kids on other things like, um, yeah, put your stuff away. Put, we're constantly reminding them to put their stuff away, but we're not constantly reminding them that they can. They can do things versus I can't. Exactly. It's, it's exactly the way to change that mindset, you know, looking at how we set ourselves up for success or do we set ourselves up for failure and looking at what we can do to make ourselves more successful. That's what. I'm sharing with families and wanting them to use with their children. And it's simple. That's the best part about it. This is, you know, it's not difficult to do, but it's knowing what to do and how to do it. You bet. You bet. We're speaking with Dr. Elaine Vogel-Snyder and her book, Seven Strategies for Raising Calm, Inspired, 
successful children. We'll come back and continue the discussion, giving you more ideas for how to calm it all down, which improves the learning and the connectivity. You can find out more at AskDrElaine.com. But stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is Dr. Elaine Vogel-Schneider. She's the author of the book, Seven Strategies for Raising Calm, Inspired, and Successful Children. Also author of the book, Massaging Your Baby, The Joy of Touch Time. Um, And so we're trying to understand how we go about creating a calmer, yet inspired uh, successful child. A lot of times we, we try to create successful children by just piling it on, giving them more and more stuff. But uh, Dr. Schneider is suggesting maybe what we ought to do is try some calming techniques that, uh, that might create a better condition for many of our children to learn. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much for being with us again. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me. You bet. You've uh, you've given us some ideas about breathing, kind of belly breathing, uh, teaching our kids how to breathe and and uh, and do it more effectively as a calming technique. Also, the power of movement and music uh, can also create some calming activities. But and affirmations in your book, I know one of the chapters that I'm dying to find out about is going on vacation with your child through <laughs> laughter. Talk about that. How how do we use how do we go on vacation uh, through laughter? That actually seems a lot cheaper than maybe a Disneyland trip. <laughs> it it really is, and it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It really is. So yes, um, it's cheaper, much cheaper, and that's a lot of these activities are are cheap. They're you have them at your fingertips, and uh, you know you can reduce any of those medical bills for anxiety and, and things that you need to do to, to get yourself uh, less anxious. So yeah, laughter. Um, you know, there is that. It, it's really important. You know, a lot of what we're talk, what I'm talking about in my book, is all about looking at how the brain functions. Um, you know, it's it's what can we do to get ourselves out of that survival mode where it's you know, the amygdala of the brain kicks in and you're into fight or flight or fright or even freeze. You know, there's so many different aspects of that survival mode. So with laughter, again, think about it. You're, you know, you're, I don't know if you bet you can come up with an image in your mind of a time that you were just so hysterical <laughs> that you were laughing so much. You know, tears were coming down your face. And um, you just were just amazing. Like you couldn't even stop the laughter because it just, it, it was the funniest experience of your life. And, you know, think about that. Well, in those moments of laughter, it's like a little vacation. Uh, you're not thinking about anything. You're not thinking about as an adult, you know, I have to pay my phone bill or, you know, my car is uh, parked in a meter. I'm going to get a ticket. At that moment, uh, and even with the, as a child, you're just in the moment all the time. And so the laughter, again, the, looking at all of these techniques and strategies are, are looking at the brain in a way of releasing those um, the stressors in your in your brain, the hormones. And the vacation occurs when you're laughing um, because, again, the, the, you're making memories 
Um, and from those memories, we find out that, you know, scientifically, there's different brain waves, and there are these, like, happy centers of the brain. Um, and it releases these feel-good hormones, the serotonin. It brings relaxation. And it's you don't have to go and get a pill for this. This is all within your own little pharmacy of your own brain and your own body. Mm. And And again, for a child, too, that is... It's so easy. If you just watch your children, they're laughing a lot more than we are. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. We're just a bunch so, of stress cases. <laughs> children really laugh about 400 times a day as compared to maybe adults laughing 15 times a day. Man. Um, but as the child gets older, the laughter seems to decrease, you know, and, and it's really important. I know with uh, some of my, my grandchildren, we just have a good old time laughing all the time, and we can laugh at a blimp picture, you know, looking yeah. at a blimp picture. We can laugh at, you know, like an M&M car in an M&M store. You know, there are so many things that just tickle the fancy of children, and in that moment of laughter, if you, you know, study the brain waves, it's, the brain waves actually change. They, they, they're different. Yes, they're different physiologically. We've got opiates that are releasing, uh, that make you feel good. The serotonin, like I mentioned, is another hormone that makes you feel good and helps bring on relaxation. And these are really critical for stress relief. Totally. Totally. And again, yeah. so basic, so basic. I know uh, we've and only got a few more minutes, but one thing I know that you really are a master of is is touch with our children um, maybe just give us some insight into the power of touch and how we can more effectively use touch to help create a calmer learning environment. Absolutely. Yes, touch is, is pretty much the, um, the sense in our body. It's pretty much the mother of all senses. Every other sense really depends a lot on touch. And actually, touch is the first sense that's developed in utero is the power, is the sense of touch. And the reason I call it the power of touch is because it's really like an unknown uh, power that you have within you to build relationships between parents and child. And even the strategies that I've spoken about, touch is one of the strategies that I have included in the seven strategies because it really helps build that relationship between the parent and the child. It helps... uh, develop what I call a brain architecture. So it's laying the foundation for all relationships to come, and it also helps to calm the children as well. It's a very calming and soothing experience when touch is done with permission. Always I talk about permission. Uh, Even a baby, before you massage a baby, you can ask permission, look at them, say to them, Oh, are you ready for a massage? Would you like to have a massage? And give them a moment and watch their reaction. It helps parents learn about the cues of their own children. Mm. And touch also will help with academic performance. And I think, you know, these strategies, they, they are easy to use. And the ultimate goal really is the success of your child. With touch, you're helping academic performance because you're laying that foundation of trust and caring and a way of relaxing. Yeah. And all of that will help in the academic performance of your child. Absolutely, which is the goal, right? We want them to be the best they can be. Well, we appreciate it. Dr. Elaine Vogel-Schneider, great work. Uh, the book, again, is Seven Strategies for Raising Calm, Inspired, and Successful Children. 
I mean, calmer kids that know they're loved, that feel secure. Wow. What what more do you want? Well, I'd like them to go to Harvard. Well, maybe not always the goal. How about just healthy, happy, calm, productive, and successful their way? Power, folks. We'll take a break. Again, go to her website, DrElaine.com. DrElaine.com. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, two of our favorite kids ever from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. It's that time, folks, to shoot it down to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Their show is just 12 minutes away, and uh, today it will be Jerem Jordan and Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. With it. Hello. What happened to you guys? What's going on? How are you? We're good, man. I missed you. Here, here we are. You know what By I miss? By you, mean, you mean Jason? I, yeah, I missed you, Jason. Where <laughs> okay. have you been? I'm like, we talked yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I, I missed the 60-degree weather we had yesterday. Yeah, dude, there, it's snowing out there. It's snowing outside. Oh, man. Wonderful. It's, it is February, and we live right next to the mountains. But, but so, this brings me back yeah. to the day I met my wife okay. in high school, because we went to high school together. Oh, nice. And it snowed in, I think it may have even been March. And the snow, the trees were had leaves coming out, and it tore down the power lines, and they they canceled school. And I went over, and my wife and I—that's where we first met, and we went on a romantic walk in the snow. That's a great memory. Thank you for you. That was awesome. She's regretted the day her, in, you know, for the last twenty-five years. She's like, if it had been sunny that day, my life would be <laughs> so only, different. Only. So sad, so rude. So, guys, um, uh, I know you're doing a show. You're still doing the show, right? Sports show, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're doing yeah, a sports yeah. show. Sports. When did you guys start doing sports on the show? Because when I read the IMDb... Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a movie. It's always about your movies you're talking and about. And sports show. Oh, yeah. So, it's really a pop culture show. So is Jason up to speed on the sports? Oh, Jason, Jason is always ready to you know deliver. What, do you know yeah. what I hear uh, in the rumor mill about Jason? Was that Jason loves trade deadlines, NBA trade deadlines? Oh, you have no idea. Like he can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of it. Jason brings tremendous experience to the table when he comes in here. Why? Why do you like a NBA trade deadline? I'm telling you, I I don't know why. Um, And it doesn't even have to have an effect on the the local team here with Mm -hmm. the Jazz. I mean, even, it, when they're involved, it's even better for me. But like, just in general, I, I I just find it fascinating on all of the rumors and what's what are you hearing and deals that fell through. I, I don't know. It's it's the, all the behind the scenes stuff that just I, I can't get enough of it. Really? Yeah, I love it. Do you have any Do you have any rumors you want to spread? <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. I is, wish. Is there just any? Any? Uh, maybe you know what? How about we start this? Let's just hashtag uh, LeBron to the Jazz. Oh, there you go. Let's just start that hashtag and see how far it goes. I'm going to bet that's going to die fast. <laughs> LeBron's yeah, already gone. LeBron, oh, there it goes. Hey, how about yeah. Jimmer being traded from China to the NBA? Yeah, that's not going to happen. What? You think? <laughs> you did not bite on that, dude. I didn't. I did. I would love that. I was that. like, is Matt going to bite no. here or not? <laughs> I mean, 73 points. Come on. I 73 points. Points. And and that's our trending topic today, Matty. Is it really? Uh, is, is why do you want to see Jimmer Fredette get another shot in the NBA, or do you? No. Use the hashtag BYUSN. I mean, I would it? love to, but 
I, I, the guy loves Chinese food. Let's be real. <laughs> You can and go to Panda here in America. Okay, it's not the come same. On. It's not the same. But he's come making on. he's making good money, and I don't know. I don't know that anyone would appreciate him like they do there. Well, they give him the same opportunity. Can he rewrite his pro legacy? I mean, these are questions Great that questions. we will discuss we'll coming discuss up today. That's Plus, why you do your show. Okay? Yeah, but we have an hour. Let's not you know jump right. the gun here. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Right. It's a tease. It's uh, a tease. Plus, Terry Nash of men's basketball assistant coach. On uh, the Cougars getting ready for Portland and Gonzaga to end the regular season this week. Also, Jeff Judkins, the women's basketball uh, head coach, on uh, a couple of big games for the Cougars as well as they try and lock up uh, potentially the two seed. Mm. And if I mentioned the name John Templin, would you know who that is? No. You shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) He is an NIT bracketologist, uh, NYC Buckets. Okay. Uh, We're going to talk with him uh, and uh, get his take on what he thinks BYU's postseason future will look like. Because right now he has BYU playing Utah in the NIT. Wouldn't oh, that be really? awesome? That would be. BYU, Utah pays to get out of it, yeah, but then they would... still play. Oh, that would be great. The, oh, the, that'd be the only thing, though, that would make that even more sweet is if it could be played in Provo, the game that Kraskoviak wanted out. He didn't want to come to Provo. Yeah. That, that would make it, it even more sweet. It might be a Utah sweet. home yes. game. Yes. We'll See, ask him. Will it, would it be a home game for you? Yeah, Utah that that's would make the situation mm. even better. Not only do you pay BYU to get out of the game, but then the very next year, you actually have to go back to Provo anyway and play BYU. Oh, yeah. that would be horrible for Plus them. Plus what NFL.com said about Jamal Williams. We'll tell you coming up. Really? Yeah. There's something almost every day about Jamal Williams out there. He's, he's making the rounds. We're hearing potentially number one overall pick. Oh, my God. <laughs> we are not hearing that. Potential- <laughs> Hashtag Unpotentially. number one pick, Jamal Williams. <laughs> He he and uh, LeBron James will be uh, a team, and they're going number one overall. Oh Play. my heavens! And even yeah, that's just great. One of the Browns that actually could happen. <laughs> that really, you know what? The, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> there was a commercial a few years. Ago. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt. There was a commercial a few years ago where LeBron had a dream that he played for the Browns and he was scoring a bunch of touchdowns. Yeah. yeah. Why don't they just try it once? Right. There there are people in the NFL that are physically like LeBron James. Yeah. Whereas in basketball, he is very unique. He's an animal. Like, there's not a 6'9", 260, but what I mean is there are people that are 6'6", 250. LeBron you know James I mean? and really athletic. right now could walk onto an NFL roster and play tight end. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, I mean, I'm 5'6", and 250. <laughs> Did you say 5'6", or 6'6"? Six, six? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm 5'6". 5'9", by the way. 5'12". Yeah. <laughs> Someone asked Kevin Garnett one time, what's it like to be a 7-footer? And he said, I don't know. I'm 6'12". Oh, cute. No, but seriously, folks, I'll be here all weekend. Hey, really quick, what does it take to be a bracketologist? Uh, Where does one get the bracketology degree? uh, I believe it's at Oxford. Is um, it? Or the University of Phoenix. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or or Southern New Hampshire (laughs) online. (laughs) Online. Or BYU yeah. Independent Study. Who knows? Bracketology. All right, boys. Sounds like a killer show. Remember who you are and uh, go make it happen. We will return with honor. A little psych up, a little, little promo there. Just pumping my people up. I like to get them ready for their big show. Folks, it's only five minutes away. In five minutes, you get to enjoy Jason and Jerem and all the excitement that they bring, including Jeff Judkins. Are you kidding me? I like he, the Jeff Judkins. You just like Jeff's in general, though, right? I love Jeff's. I think it's one of the greatest group of people on earth named Jeff. Um, Great story. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. The crowd's been a little quiet today. Well, until you mentioned me and then they went crazy. I think I mesmerize them with my charm. My mom used to say I have mesmerizing charm. She always said it outdoors on the back patio. Good recovery. (laughs) Hey, uh, check this out. An Idaho man's pet squirrel goes nuts on a burglar. (laughs) No pun intended. Adam Pearl walked into his home on Tuesday and realized something didn't seem right. Pearl, who lives in Meridian, Idaho, was immediately greeted by his pet squirrel, Joey. Another J name when he got home. But then he started noticing a few doors that would normally be closed were now open. After making his way back to the back bedroom, his fear was confirmed. Once he looked at his gun safe, someone had broken into his home. Pearl called Meridian police when Officer Ashley Turner came out to take a look. Joey just had to say hello. Turner went uh, on her way only to return a few hours later with some pearls stolen uh, – some belongings that had been stolen from, I guess, this guy's house, Adam Pearl's house. She said while she was questioning the individual, he had scratches on his hands. So she asked what happened to the criminal. And the criminal said, "I, you know, this is that darn squirrel just kept attacking me while he was in the Pearl house. Squirrel. Joey, the, Joey Pearl, the squirrel, was attacking this criminal. That sounds like a mafia name. What's your name? My name's Joey the Pearl. What are you? I'm the squirrel. <laughs> Joey's now being hailed a hero. Nobody can believe it because who can say they, you know, have a squirrel? This is our hero story, right? No, this isn't the hero oh, story. Oh, I see. This is the squirrel story. Do you not have squirrel music? Nope. Are you sure he's not the hero? No. Okay. He's not the hero. I'll give you one more chance? Nope. Okay. Not the hero. Not even the hero. So what, what do you give a squirrel when they save a lot of, you know, your, your belongings? You give them whoppers. Squirrels love whoppers. Because no one else will eat them. That's right. No one else will eat them, and they're in the shape of a nut. So it's like, you know, say, yeah, it looks like a nut. No, it's a whopper. Anyway, our hero story of the day is a Tesla driver. Check this out. Teresa Sager, uh, Cox Media Group National Content Desk is the one that provided the story to us. Authorities in Munich responded to a crash um, on the Autobahn and was initiated by a Tesla driver who noticed a fellow motorist losing consciousness. The Tesla driver is being held a hero after authorities in Munich said he used his luxury luxury electric car to stop another driver on the Autobahn who appeared to be suffering from a stroke. The Tesla driver, who was identified by a German newspaper um, as Manfred Kick, was driving north on the Autobahn near Munich when a Volkswagen Passat was driving erratically next to him. He pulled his Tesla Model S up to the Passat, realized the driver appeared to be in serious trouble. The driver had tipped forward and hung motionless in his seatbelt. Kick told the news uh, his head and hands were hung limply. I had to stop his car somehow. Otherwise, you know, this could have gone on and gotten ugly. With fire officials described as an incredible, courageous act, Kick overtook the Passat in front of the car. Kick slowly pumped his brakes until the Tesla and the Passat came to a stop. It was like a movie. But he saved the guy's life. How cool is that? And Elon Musk apparently replaced his car. What a cool story. Folks, that's what happens when you're a hero in the coolest car ever created on Earth, the Tesla Model 9 or Model S 9 
whatever it is, 90, I think it is. Um, Anyway, folks, to be a hero, you don't have to have a Tesla, though. Sometimes you just need to be at the right place at the right time, and no better place to be than just with your family, your friends. Let's all step it up, and let's be heroes at home. Start there. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, let's make it a great one. BYU Sports Nation is up next.